Extra, extra. Read all about it. Area Man Creates Podcast. All right, everybody. This is Area Man Podcast, episode three on the Slab Network. Slab Content Company, whatever. I haven't officially named it anything, but it is Slab that's producing this. And there's a Slab channel on YouTube where I'm posting all these, in addition to the audio files on iTunes, etc. Episode 3 was recorded um, on Father's Day with my dad, Gary Stormone, 68-year-old man who came from a crack in a sidewalk in Richfield, two alcoholic parents, and... Uh, sort of an independent upbringing, as he would describe it, and found some success in his 30s, became really well off, and then subsequently sort of reverted back to the mean. And he's an Uber driver now, which he loves to do. He loves the psychology of it. He's not quite a doctor, came a dissertation short or something like that, So, but he loves the psychology. Um, of riding and driving, talking to his riders, I should say, and it's what he does for a living now, and I'm lucky enough at 43 to still have my dad, and the nature of our relationship has changed a lot over the years. He's a smartass, like a lot of guys from his generation, but also extremely thoughtful, and I always enjoy the conversations we have, so it was cool to record one and get it sort of documented, so that not only can I look back on it, but my kids can, etc., down the road so area man episode three dead all right we're officially recording sounds good to me welcome to the slab well thank you i moved some stuff around so the lighting might be a little weird here but whatever gives a shit uh, are you nervous yes you're sitting like you're a little nervous well you told me to sit up i wanted to sit back <laughs> well you can sit back we'll try it what does it look like when you sit back Ooh, you look more um, authoritarian. Do I when I sit back? I should say authoritative, right? Hold on. I have a black book here filled with questions. Oh, good. <laughs> good. The whole book's filled. Yeah, I can see that. I thought it was, got I thought it was old girlfriend torment for something. <laughs> yeah, we don't keep those in a book anymore. Oh, do okay. No. I do have it in my, my call log, though, old numbers. I was going through my phone the other day, and uh, I can't remember why. I was looking for a certain phone number, which I never do, right? Anybody I need to call, it's not like a search through my contacts. And I was going through, and there was there was literally, like, girls said, like, Jessica, Philadelphia. Like, when I lived in Los Angeles, it, it's like uh, you'd meet somebody, and they wouldn't be from L.A. They would be visiting friends or whatever. So it would just be first name and the city they were from. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're still in my phone from, you know, I guess 15 years ago. I never go through my contact list. And now if you change phones, it's in the cloud, right? So I'd have to manually delete those. And so Sarah was sitting with me and she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, wow, there's a lot of a lot of chicks in my phone. And I went through and there's literally dozens and dozens of them. I didn't delete them, though. Well, I had old business contacts and it's like, OK, I haven't talked to this person for 20 years. You know, yeah. But remember what, when you used to change your phone out, it was like uh, you had to you had to either use the SIM card 
and transfer all that stuff, or you had to manually re-enter numbers. And now I guess it just isn't that way because I haven't thought about numbers in, I don't know, five phones or something. Yeah, probably. It's just, it goes with you whether you like it or not, I guess. Yeah. Unless you're making an active to, to delete them, which you probably should sometime. You think? Why? Uh, just Jessica from Philly, because she's probably married to like five kids now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there is no reason to have her phone number. It's hard to let go of stuff like that, though. It's just an ego thing, right? Well, mom was going through pictures the other day, and she has something like 20,000 pictures, some of them duplicate, and she started going through them. I think she got it down to 18.5 or something like that. It's, yeah. it's hard to get rid of a picture. Oh, you mean after after deleting duplicates, she did? Yeah, well, duplicates, and then some that, you know, she said, okay, I'm never going to need this one. But she's got something similar to it. But just, got, you know, your, your life is pretty well chronicled. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm 43 years old, so I would say it's well chronicled relative to most people my age. But relative to somebody born in the mid-90s or later, it's not even close. They've essentially lived like Ed TV or Truman Show. I mean, everything's well, chronicled. Well, you're right. But, I mean, we had a phenomenal uh, bill at Camera Exchange or whatever it was named. Back then, all pictures had to be developed. And yeah. it was like $10 every time you developed the roll of film. And we, we've got thousands. Of, of a, undeveloped film, you mean? No, I mean, we got oh, to develop, but she actually had the pictures developed. And yeah. There. Right. National Camera Exchange, I think was the name of it. Yeah, you guys were kind of ahead on technology, too. That's one of my prevailing memories of growing up is, uh, is I, you know, I can remember being really little and being, you know, in hindsight, being poor, which I didn't know at the time, of course. But then all of a sudden, at some point, you were traveling a lot, which obviously is a profound memory, you know, when your dad starts just going on week-long business trips. But then next thing I knew, we were... We were ahead of the curve on technology. So whatever you were doing was obviously paying well because all of a sudden in 1980, geez, 88, we had a, it wasn't called a cell phone. It was called a car phone. Well, that's right. We had the car phone. That was huge. Uh, I remember the day we got it, we brought it into a restaurant or something just to call somebody to say that we could do it. it was, yeah. Mama D's in Robbinsdale. Yeah. Yeah. We brought it and put it in the booth. Yeah. It was very exciting. It had... You know, it was like a it was like a little miniature uh, carry on luggage and the, the 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 buttons lit up light green. Yeah, were they, they were like translucent white. And then they, when you hit them, they lit up green um, and you'd have to dial it while it was still hung up, I think. And then you would hit send and pick it up. That's how I remember it. I don't know if that's I, accurate. you're absolutely right. Yeah. The one technology I remember because it's a money issue. I can't remember exactly the date, but it was just, uh, it was before Word, but just a computer, a printer, and a plotter. And in those days, paid $16,500. And this was a, what they call, I think, a 298 or something. I mean, it wasn't even close to the capability that we have right now, but it was $16,500. What year? Oh, I mean, you guys were in, like in junior high, you know. So late eighties. Yeah. What is that in today's dollars? I mean, what, did you pay fifty thousand dollars for a it printer? Was pretty, probably pretty close for to forty 
$50,000. You go, I suppose closer to 40. With the idea that you would use it for pre work presentations? Or yeah, was it just because. That's what we used it for. And, and uh, uh, I remember you guys having stuff on the computer and teachers coming back saying, who do you they think they are? That, you know, nobody. <laughs> I but I had it, you know, with the home office because I traveled. And mm -hmm. so I kept, you know, the computer and the printer and the plotter at, at home. So what happened that you went from, you know, when I was really young, this bartender, essentially you were working, you know, at Minigasco or what have you, and then you had to work on weekends, right? I mean, you had to for the cash. Mm -hmm. What happened What happened from from that period in the early 80s to six, eight years later, you're buying $16,000 plotters? What did you do? What happened, and it was uh, fortuitous, uh, I was working for Minigasco, which, you know, is just an average type job working in their human resource, doing test validation. <clears throat> um, what does that mean, test validation? Years ago, okay, you can test for psychological elements. You can test for knowledge, skills, and abilities, okay? And I worked previous to Minigasco, I worked at the civil service. Civil service, state and city, used to be what they call merit testing. I get into that later. What year? But, what year are we talking here? The reason I ask is psychology is is as a as a respected study has changed so drastically in the last 30, 40 years that it's. I'm interested to know what year we're talking when you're talking about testing at work in the workplace. This was probably 75, 76, 77. I was in graduate school when I worked for the city of Minneapolis, and you developed what used to be called civil service tests. These would be paper and pencil tests that would measure important job characteristics. The reason that they came out was prior to civil service tests, there was a lot of nepotism. In other words, if you wanted a government job, you simply knew somebody and they would give you the job. Okay. So to try to over... Uh, address that problem, they came up with testing. It was done throughout the nation, okay? Um, but it had to be a test that had what they call proper validation, and that's statistical modeling that says, yes, people that score higher on that test will do better in the job than people that don't score high. Um, all tests should be validated. In other words, do they measure what you think they're going to measure? So, I forgot the question, but I was doing test validation for the civil service. Was that a was that a pretty new con? Was that a pretty new concept at the time, or were there people that were rejecting it, like uh, as sort of like voodoo? No, it, it had been around since the fifties, maybe even the forties. Okay, the nepotism came like in the thirties, so it had been pretty well established uh, by the time I was doing it. We'll talk about something else in a little bit because I can only address one question at a time, but. So I was working at the civil service. I then worked at Minigasco, which paid better. I then went to work for United Research, which paid considerably better. And that's where I started traveling. Um, I was fortunate that I was working for General Motors. I think you may have heard this story. And they came up and said, you know what? We like what you're doing. This is myself and a guy named Bruce Spiker, who you might remember. Uh, would you would be willing to do this in the plants? The company I worked for, United Research Search, said no uh, because it was union, and they basically back then consultants didn't want to work for the union as their boss. 
So they came up to me privately and said, would you be willing to do it? So that's when I left uh, United Research. So you had to make a tough decision? Was it a, was it a difficult decision or no? No, not too much. Uh, you had a guaranteed wage, contract. They gave me a contract. The wage before went, before you wage, even quit. My wage went up that year from 60000 to, I think it was 425000 Your yeah. wage? That's what I earned. That Who year. negotiated that deal for you? You? Well, yeah, I, Spiker and I, and this is what the contract was that they felt that they were going to be given. Before, I mean, they knew, General Motors knew what the price of it was. But before, I had worked for a consulting firm that took a lot of it, and I was just one of the consultants, a junior one at that. Wow. Suddenly, I was owner of the company. So overnight, you were you were wealthy. Well, wealthy is the wrong word, but you were affluent. Yeah, yeah, overnight. That must have, how old, so you would have been, if this is 1986-ish? Seven? Probably, yeah, a little bit earlier than that. So you're 30, 33, 34 years old. Yeah, 32, that's, 33, something like that. That's a significant income at that well, age and that year. Yeah, yeah, it was. I can't believe you didn't have a non-compete or something that you know would, that prevented you from just jumping ship and going to a client. What do you mean? Well, General Motors was a client of United... Uh, Research or whatever. What was the name of the company? United Research. Yeah, so they were a client of... Non-competes aren't what you think they are. If the client is still giving United Research business... Mm. Oh, because, yeah, because they were going to do something new. You were doing something new. Yeah, General Motors can basically get whoever they want. Why do I feel like, though, nowadays that non-compete would somehow cover this? And probably you probably set the precedent and they reworked all the language and non-compete across the country. (laughs) I have always heard that non-competes don't really count for much because people are entitled to make a living. You know, you can't sign your way around off of making a living. It's as simple as that. At least the last time I worried about a non-compete, which was 30 years ago. I haven't really heard too many stories where they're challenged. I'm trying to think, but I don't run in that world. Maybe no, Adam does or something. Yeah, he would know more. But um, so you went more, to make sixty thousand dollars. What's that? What, what were you gonna say? They're more to discourage, you know, people from taking it than they are to really stop it. Interesting. Know? I'm not sure I knew that. Regardless, you went from making sixty thousand dollars a year to four hundred and twenty something. Is that what you said? Yeah, something like that. That's incredible. Yeah. And I wasn't mature enough to make that kind of money. <laughs> so, so you bought sixteen thousand dollar printers. Yeah, yeah. So, and so from there, you the company just you continued to, to to. Obviously, General Motors was big enough that you could you could go plant by plant and institute this this model, which we was did, we did that for about five years in General Motors, a couple of years in. Uh, Ford, we did it. Uh, Lipton found out about us. We did it for Lipton. Uh, and I then, remember you bringing home bags of fun fruits. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think they even make anymore. But I remember thinking, I didn't know anything about your income. I just knew you were coming home with fun fruits. Yeah, so I was doing all right, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were paying you in fun fruits. Um, that had to have been a pretty exciting time for you. I mean, it, well, it was pretty exciting. And then, you know, it, that kind of dried up. And then I went to work for BI. We had that legal problem with Spiker uh, and GM didn't want to get involved in a legal problem. So yeah. that 
you know, I mean, it, which, which is a good lesson for you to have, a good lesson for everybody to have. It's happened to a lot of people where greed shoots, you know, the, the messenger. I mean, it was, well, so <clears throat> you say that dried up. That's a that's a really general statement for a decent amount of time and a lot of stress and frustration for you. I mean, I, I was old enough to know when when things went south that it was affecting you. And so I guess my question would be, I don't know. I don't know that getting into the nitty gritty of why it uh, it didn't work is really, you know, other than maybe a lesson or two built in there. I don't know that that's so much worth it. But I guess I would ask, were you out over your skis a little bit when you were making that kind of money so quickly? And. And did it affect the way you sort of laid out the business? Like, do you know what I mean by out over your skis? Yeah, I do. Well, I'm pretty sure that analogy makes sense to me. Um, going downhill faster than I probably should. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I understand, and not necessarily, but going faster. Um, the reality, in, in retrospect, and I knew it at the time, we probably should have done more to formalize a business. Now, had Adam been a partner, he would have said, you need to do these sorts of things to do a sustainable business. Um, and make sure that what we had was replicable without me. I just got into the, the yeah. business. I just enjoyed doing it. I really didn't worry about, you know, yeah. money. We didn't spend all the money um, at that time. Didn't worry. I enjoyed what I was doing. Had I done, had I been more prudent and more uh, future focused, we would have created a business as opposed to everything relying on me and individually right and, and really what you were doing was in summary you were going into various plants and implementing what some sort of some sort of uh hierarchy some some sort of new psychology in terms of way employees would interact with their superiors what exactly was it well the easiest way i've explained it to other people is i mean you've called yourself the father of organizational change Okay, because it was one of the early successful ones. I mean, yeah. everything else before that had been theoretical. Um, Are you willing to say of, right now on camera that you're the father of organizational change? Of successful organizational change, yeah. Okay. Really one of their what we did in a large-scale basis, and it's been followed by quite a few others, and part of what I should have done is written a book, got more credit for it. But um, at the time, let me place it. Uh, GM was the biggest corporation in the world. The number one cause of defects in GM cars were intentionally inflicted by hourly people. Okay. How did you find, how did you find that out? They, they told us, I mean, when we were in the plant, you know, um, if give me an example of an inflicted, uh, flaw, uh, a small piece missing, Hmm. uh, a dent on it, something that would have to further go to re, uh, warranty. They literally so, sabotaged it. Yeah. yeah. Grounds for losing your job. Well, it, it is. But if you, okay, let me step back. So here's what's fascinating to me, okay? I get into this stuff more than making a business. When Henry Ford first created the assembly line, they just needed bodies. And that's why he brought a lot of blacks and illiterate hillbillies up from the south because that's where the labor pool was 
and put them in the plants. And that's why the demographic of Detroit is what it is today. Um, and they just worked and they paid them very well. But that was like in the 20s, okay? After a while, these people became educated. The sons became educated. There was a guy in the line. Some of them had PhDs, but it paid so well to be on the line. But yet management still treated them as if they were illiterate. Mm -hmm. And the level of strife between the two, the level of disrespect was enormous. They hated each other, but they both had to. Then all of a sudden, a third party comes in. Uh, we'll call it foreign competition, but primarily Japanese, you know, was coming in. They had a model that didn't have very many style changes, but their quality was outstanding. They started to take market share. GM realized, and that's where we were brought in, look, we've got to do something. Um, because if we keep fighting each other, we're both going to lose to the enemy. Okay? And that's actually what I call organizational change. It's uh, was using fundamentally what I call a thing called foxhole team building. And I think I've explained that to you before. If you, my analogy, you take a New York Jew and a Southern Baptist and you put them into a coffee shop, they're going to argue about religion. But if you put them in a foxhole with bullets coming at them, suddenly they become a pair. Some, suddenly they become a teammate. What we did at GM was help through a process emphasize the fact that there's an enemy out there. Now, some of the stuff we did, and they did, probably couldn't be done today with good give me, a, give, me an give me an example of what you did. We, we made the Japanese the enemy. Okay. And, I mean, some people took it pretty far, like signs that said, remember Pearl Harbor. Wow. And all these other Yeah, things. there's no way you could do that now. Zero chance. No. no. But what we had to emphasize is the value of both parties because the value of the hourly person was not uh, appreciated and yet they were vital they were vital to the success of the organization and they're vital to the quality so we actually brought them in and said what do you need to be uh, effective on a quality basis nobody this is what's amazing to me Nobody had ever done that previously. Okay? That's incredible. Yeah, it seems pretty simplistic. Uh, and on the flip side, the hour or the management recognizing, wait a minute, you can't do this. We've got the records. You can't do this without without their support. Your job is to make them successful. You know, not be arrogant. That kind of organizational culture has taken off quite a bit since more and more organizations recognize we need we need the people to be part of the mission part of the values part of the success story but years ago you know like 30 40 years ago no there was a hierarchy you know yeah but don't you don't you think there's don't you think don't you think that just in general the concept of under the concept of psychology implementing it, understanding it, giving it value has changed drastically. I mean, this idea that anybody would even have feelings about their workplace and those feelings would affect their productivity, it, as obvious as that sounds now, it, it really wasn't even a concept. Never no, mind. 
no. And it it's so easy to go, oh, those guys were pricks. Upper level management were pricks. But it's like you're talking about you're talking about apples and oranges when you when you're talking about the way the brains worked in in terms of workplace uh, focus. I mean, psychology as a as a as a science was was. I mean, I know maybe not in the '80s, but prior to that, it was like voodoo. I remember learning about this in in, in undergrad. It's like a lot of people just looked at at, at psychology almost like palm reading. It, oh, like it it had to make its way, and for it, you know, the idea that it wasn't in, you know, in the best interest of these these plant managers to go. Well, how is Bobby feeling today? I mean, that that that's a joke. Oh, no, very much so. And, and one of the things, and I, I haven't read this anywhere, but the way I perceived it in hindsight, the only large-scale organizational model most people had back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s was the military model. Mm. You had a general, you had colonels, you had oh. sergeants, you had privates that basically did whatever anybody asked. That kind of model, authoritative model, was what most organizations ran. It wasn't really questioned too much. Um, that's, you know, if you were a private, you did what the sergeant said. Um, did you feel like did, did you feel like you were pioneering something at the time? No, because I was young at the time. I mean, I thought it was making sense. I was actually overwhelmed that they thought it was so valuable. I mean, I didn't have a history of not doing that. I, I, Larry Jolly, who you've met and is still a good friend of mine, was a union representative, and together we came up with this concept. Uh, it was fortunate that I wasn't working with a management representative alone. Larry's perspective really helped say, you know, help, help develop this. He's the one who told me about the number of defects, where the defects were coming from. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, a union mindset. And it doesn't make sense, you know. I mean, now it, now it, people would pshaw at the concept that you wouldn't, you know, want your mm -hmm. employee. But back then it did matter. Look, we paid them. That was what we used yeah. to do. What's the big deal? We're paying these guys. Right. Who cares about their feeling. We're paying them. Yeah, I mean, it was like parenting. It was like we're giving them food and a roof over their head. Get out there on the farm and earn your keep. This is your children. Yeah. And we're not worried about your growth. We're not worried about are you engaged. We're not worried about whether you, you know, are successful with the product. Um, so when you walked into a plant, <clears throat> what did you I do? I walked in with Larry Jolly, by the way. Okay, you walked. Walk okay, you walked into a plant with Larry Jolly. Here you are, 33 years old, and you looked 43 because everybody looked 12 years older back then. I don't. It's amazing. Actually, at 28, you guys all looked 48. I don't understand them. But then you didn't age past that. So you guys were all 48 for about 30 years. It's incredible to look at photographs. But you guys walk into a plant, and do you sit down with upper level, or do you go right to lower level, or do you talk to everybody? You gather them in a room? Are you down where the, where the, where the nuts and bolts are humming? What, what was it? When we got into a plant, we were invited um, – but it was a senior vice president that had prefaced us before we went there. And that particular plant, keep in mind, plants were like 4,000 people. These are, these are like big dogs in the state. Yeah, so they didn't, they didn't pull the giant power button, power no. everything down and gather you in the cafeteria. <laughs> no, but no, they, 
they knew ahead of time, and they actually bid on our our uh, services because I mean we could only be so many places. So they actually bid and said we want to do it. They talked to us ahead of time. The union uh, leadership and the plant leadership would talk to us before we were brought into the plant, and then we were introduced, you know, to the plant itself, the individuals, um, and then we went kind of through what we were going to be doing. But we didn't do it. It was never presented in such a way that it made it look like it was going to be adversarial. Mm. We never talked about that. We just talked about, we always focused on quality, okay? Because one of the things about building teams is always focus on a common goal. I mean, they would do that in marriage counseling and any kind of counseling. Have a common goal, and that way you can get people to unite. It's it's the same as having a common enemy, okay? Um, so... I mean that makes yeah that makes perfect sense. I mean that seems obvious really. It but is I, but I, but I think maybe a lot of that wasn't so obvious back then like we were saying. Well, and the other is that if you look around today, a lot of things that are psychologically obvious aren't adopted. I mean, people don't think about it. They will say, "Oh, yeah, of course that's the case." But yet if you see actions and and behaviors, it's like, "Wait a minute." All right. That? Let me throw something out to you. And maybe it's early, maybe I want to get on this. One of the things I've observed with the Democratic Party is they're creating an enemy in Trump. They are they're using the same process that we used, um, you know, personify evil, mm. find an enemy, and you can unite because the Democrats themselves are, are all you know it's quite a spectrum of people, but what they share is the enemy, and that being Trump. It's a, it's a very effective team building exercise, and you see it. You know, you see people use it. Yeah, it's almost like I don't think it's coincidental. Yeah, no, I don't think it is either. And and maybe that's all it is. I mean, maybe they're all master psychologists, and that's just all it is. They're just able to they're able to play this game. It feels so insincere to me. It feels so manipulated. I would guess when you were going into a plant, it was new enough that when you introduced it. It felt maybe sincere. It didn't feel so contrived. It's like, you know, advertising was so sort of trusted at a certain point oh, sure. in time. And it's like before people were were like privy to what was really going on in terms of trying to manipulate the, the human psyche, right? It was like there was a trust. There was like a – there wasn't that sort of like skepticism or cynicism. And so it was effective and and – by the way, it's still very, very effective. Yeah, it is very effective still. But if you take the masses, the other is even people are aware of it. It's not like top of consciousness 100% of the time. You still fall apart. You, you what? still fall yeah. apart. Because you're not. Hey, as a psychologist, why is that? And Tell only me why that is. Effect. What's that? Why is that? You're a psychologist almost. You're one. You're one. You're one. Class short or one credit short, right? A couple oh, I just had to defend my uh, doctorate. I never did. I had, <laughs> I had my third child before I could do that. <laughs> but as a, you're still a psychologist. I got all the classwork and all the, <laughs> all the tests. Isn't that, isn't that fucking amazing, though? So you, you literally, you, in terms of the schooling and the education, right, and the hours 
and the perspective, you have it all. Yeah. But it just you just can't get into certain clubs because you didn't you just can't. But, but those clubs weren't important to me. <laughs> you know, but but I've got a history of that. I soloed. Do I have a pilot's license? Mm-hmm. No, I would have been taking one more test. Oh, I'm with you. I I share that. It's you know what it is, Dad. It's like it's like you like buffets. You know what I mean? You want to sample stuff. There's there's that whole like you know variety in life. You know, spice of life is variety or whatever it is. Like, there's a lot of value in that for you, and I think I inherited that from you. You don't put deep, you don't put deep roots down when you when you live that way, but you, I mean, goddamn, you get to try so many different things and meet so many different people, and you get a sense of what a certain industry is like or a certain room is like or what it would be like to be this person, or you get senses of that, but you never become established as that. Well, because... And you and I, I guess we were very much alike on this. To me, the journey was much more than the destination. I mean, I uh, I thought it was, by the time that happened, well, for, I mean, one, I was becoming a parent, obviously, and a second parent, a third parent. And then I started getting off on other things, you know. I mean, yeah, I, obviously- I was very involved in, in the auto industry. You know, that's when I should have been at home defending my do you think it ever hurt you? Not, I well, mean, literally not being able to not introduce yourself as Dr. Gary Stormone. Did that ever hurt you in business, it, you know, professionally? But I wasn't running in those circles. I mean, so it didn't. It, it, to me, it didn't. Yes, it probably, I would have been a different path. Okay. Everybody is. You make decisions and you, that leads you down one path. Um, I think you know that before I went into psychology, I was accepted at Harvard Law. And mm-hmm. I had somebody that said, no, you know, you're not going to make it. This isn't your temperament to be a lawyer. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and it wasn't. I, you know, the, they would know better. So, I mean, sometimes you you thinking like, oh, what if I had? But that's not the path. I mean, I, I'm... It, maybe it's because I'm older now, but this is the path. I enjoyed the path. It's been yeah. great, you know. Yeah, and, and uh, what do you would have been more money? I stayed this more prestige, if I had stayed this more, whatever. But also, there would have been something that I had given up, you know. And I'm not sure what it would be. So I, you know, I mean, you can always say, "Wow, what would have happened?" But you never look back and say, "I wish I had changed," because this is the person that's then saying. I wish I had changed. Yeah, and when you're young too, I mean, you you, you just you just feel like you have time to do all that shit. Yeah. I mean, you just you just do. I mean, I, I you know, in my 40s, I'm starting to sense that already. It's like, okay, that 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 perspective that anything is possible is not really my perspective anymore. And that's that's only in the last couple of years because I've always kind of lived in a in a state of I, I wouldn't say denial but that eh, i could do that still if i want to do but, outside of professional baseball i think no no i literally just came to terms with that <laughs> I, I still have dreams i still have dreams yeah. that i'm getting drafted i mean it's fucked up i still have dreams that i walk on and play football at wisconsin which is preposterous but i still have them and they're real and i wake up and i'm a little disappointed for the first couple minutes it's like they're so real 
in terms of like being back in that frame of mind and then you know but it speaks volumes that i dream about it it's kind of but also i think it's it says that's fine and that's fantasy and it's kind of um if you were spending if you decided to leave your family and lift weights i think there's a king of queens art episode where all of a sudden he started thinking he was going to be making it pro and it was like no that was like 10 years ago Doug. yeah yeah I, it, that's not unnatural i mean it, it's there's still i sometimes i think it's like okay you know what i really ought to start doing this because i only do have you know uh-huh. 20 to 50 more years to live 20 to 50 is that what you said <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think so so we stumbled onto something here there's no way to perceive there there is no way to truly perceive how much time you have left or or to quantify it right there just isn't even if i told you okay that we don't know when we're going to die so it obviously there is no way but what if i told you you're going to die at 86 that gives you you know what is that 20 you know what would that be 18 years left you still wouldn't really be able to, your brain wouldn't let you process the tick, the, the ticking down of that clock. It's not, we're not designed to comprehend that in a way that would motivate you to accomplish something or seek out certain enjoyments or, you know, buckets you want to kick or not kick, what, uh, uh, bucket list. <laughs> yeah, buckets you want, the fuck, I don't even know, what, why do they call it bucket? Oh, before you kick the bucket. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And And it's like, what has to be done, what doesn't. I've always wondered what it would be like, and we know people that have given, you know, like a, a deadline. It's just like, you know, hey, you got one year. and That's incomprehensible for me. It, it's, it's hard for me to say that too, especially, you know, year seems like something, and then to actually, as it starts ticking away, I it's got to be denial of some type, and I have no Pretty hard to wrestle with. Do you have, if you had to... But I, what I am doing, even at my age, is uh, trying to get the bills paid and get you know some other stuff. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this then, since since you said that, so you, you go from you know, and I, I have a child's perspective on all this because I was I was so young, you know, when when we were poor, and then I, obviously I'm I'm in adolescence as you start having some success, and by the time I reach high school, I feel like we're the the wealthiest family in my school, which was a bizarre feeling. And, um, but I, st- I felt like you and, and you still had these values that were like this poor kid from Richfield. Like you, you still, f- and again, this is my, my, my teenage perspective on this. So it may not have been accurate, but I, you, you seemed like a guy who was wowed by his own success. And when you built this ostentatious house in in Plymouth, it was like, you guys look what I was able to accomplish. It wasn't like, mm, oh, this will go so good with a Bordeaux. You know, I mean, it was like you were, to my perspective, you were you were in awe of your own success in a lot of ways. Almost, almost surprised by it. Would that be accurate? Well, the... Yeah, to some extent. Or having fun with it, having fun with it. I think you built that house not as like a like a laying your dick on the table, but as a way of like of 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 like showing people, hey, I'm 
I'm a guy who grew up with two alcoholic parents in a semi-abusive household who just fucking grinded. I was bartending 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And look it. The thing is, okay, and here's... When you go through life, you know, you, you can read books, you can take advice. Maybe there's a mentor. I really never had one. I, it came, all right? I did what I wanted to do. And by the way, this was one of the effects of it, okay? Like a side effect. I can't really look back. And you, you think everything's cause and effect, but this was an effect. I don't. What did I do that caused this? Because you know what I mean? It, I was just doing what I'm doing, and suddenly you're right. This, this It was a byproduct. This house, it's like, okay, that must have been the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, it wasn't analytically pursued, okay? Gotcha. Yeah. We had the money, and this is one of those things, and oh, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was weird as a kid to all of a sudden be viewed through that lens, though, too, because there was resentment. Which, which was new. I still felt like the poor kid from Ramsdale, and I was the rich kid from Plymouth, and that's already a weird time, you know, when you're, you know, you're getting. Yeah, but most of the parents, I I believe, didn't see Brenda and I as pretentious or. No, I'm talking about the kids. From my perspective, yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about. I I couldn't even tell you what the parents thought. I'm telling you about the kids. And it was just a weird thing. It was like, there goes that, that cocky, rich prick. And I was like, you guys, like, no, <laughs> that's not who I am. I'm still, I'm still the, the six-year-old, you know, on the bus in Robbinsdale. So it was weird. And, and then it kind of went away for you, which was interesting. It, it's like, it was like, and I always wanted to ask you this. Did, did, you, did you reach your goals too early in terms of career? Because you would have only been in your 40s. I know you said that some things got away from you and you didn't lay the foundation, but you were still young enough where it's like you probably you probably could have either rebuilt something or you would have been in demand as as the father of organizational change as this as this industry was now becoming legitimized. It seemed to me, but it just kind of from my perspective, again, as, as your son and getting a little older, I was in my late teens now or 20s, but it, it seemed like there was like a crescendo. And then. Oh, well, it was, was a it. crescendo. And, and at the time, it wasn't thought of as being a crescendo. Sure. First of all, there wasn't a big focus on what I made. The money came and I knew as GM was. Yeah. Uh, and Lipton, they were those were special contracts. But then um, mentally, I started getting into consumer psychology. Okay. What is and that? Working with that. Why do people buy what they buy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like be, consumer behavior type stuff. Yeah. And so keep in mind, I just spent, what, 15 years in more of the organizational employee psychology. I'd done like 10 different organizational changes. I really didn't want to do another one. I mean, the recipe had already been written and tested and it worked well. And, you know, I had the opportunity of working with BI and then Carlson Companies, who uh, now AMIA, but that was like fascinating to me. But in that era, in that area rather, um, I was a novice. 
I mean, it wasn't like I was the expert. I was more than happy to throw away the solid expertise, which, yeah, in hindsight, maybe I should have exploited that and stayed in that field, written books, da-da-da-da. And, but I wanted something different. I mean, I've always wanted something different. Yeah. Um, and life's been good enough for me that I never really worried about a career. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Unfortunately, for better or worse, enough that I never learned that. Oh, by the way, you're supposed to do certain things career-wise. Right. So I didn't do. Them. I mean, it was not. I didn't reject them. I just didn't do. Them. Yeah, you never nurtured relationships. I knew that about you pretty young, yeah. and then the value in that. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I mean, I can think. I mean, I think that goes back to my family. I just didn't have relationships. I, uh, mom's the relationship. You're the relationship. But I don't know that I'm that great at it either. But I remember you just being, you were like a force of nature in and of yourself. You were like a self, you were like a self-contained everything. And yeah. and when things go sideways, if you, if you got a contact or two that, you know, think you're something special. It's like they just put you under their wing until you get your feet going again. And and by the way, pay you a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to do it. And well, no, get... and, but I never, I never anticipated, never expected, never pr- approached anybody. Probably should have. I mean, uh, that's. I'm not saying this was the right way to go. Yeah. Um, things came easy. Relationships came easy. I didn't foster them, but yet I was voted most popular in high school. I mean, it was like, okay, if that's what it is, I'm just right, you know. Yeah. And that kind of thing, I would have done better to, you know, have worked at relationships. I didn't, <laughs> it's pretty hard to explain. I'm pretty self-centered. I don't work at anything really pretty much. It comes. I'm just kind of on the river. Going down. So, so are you content with the way everything's gone? The way everything is gone for you? I mean, what would you change if you could change anything? I um, but see, each thing has brought up like new opportunities and new perspective. I mean, yeah, I, I think I thought back, saying, you know what, I should have really organized the organizational psychology. Should have developed a consulting firm. Should have. Uh, when you really, say when you say should have though, does it keep you up at night or is that no, just like? No, I'm uh, just saying that had that gone. But see, every time, and, and this is this is critical, at least in my belief, is you make a decision, but that's going to prevent you from someplace else. One of one of the okay, there's a couple of things that, at my perspective, where I am right now, are extremely beneficial, and I think it's probably more insightful than anything I did when I was younger, and that's one, being a grandparent. <laughs> I'm a better grandparent than I was uh, a parent. You so know, you think, I think every grandparent would say that. Yeah, I mean, and probably. Do you think there's, uh, do you think, what percentage of people are better parents than grandparents? I think it's very few. No, and, but, and that makes sense because you learn as you Yeah, go. it's your second tee shot. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the other is that you now have a different perspective and you see the joy of, of children. I mean, they are such blessings. They really are. I mean, 
I, I believe you feel that way. Uh, I've always felt that way about the three of you, you know, but the grandchildren just almost blow me away with what they learn, their insight, how they address the world. I've been See, that's, that's an example of you, Dad. That, that, that's a reflection of you and what you've learned about the world and people. It's not them. I mean, no, child possesses that capability. You just, and, and that's, that's one of the things that I, you know, I didn't have my first biological child till I was 37 years old. Okay. You know, I became a dad overnight with Talon at 32, but that that's, you know, that's a little different. You know, if I'm being totally honest, it's like you're a glorified kind of friend of mom's and then you're kind of an uncle and then you, you sort of, you figure out, you know, you are though, and you figure out what you're what your role is. And also he has a dad. It's not like, you know, it's not like his dad was killed when he was young or was a deadbeat dad and wasn't around. His dad exists. So, so that means I got to find sort of unique ways of, of fitting in. So I, I didn't really, I didn't have the full gamut of fatherhood until I had a biological child and I was 37. And so you were what, 23, 24 years old. Just think about emotional in a vacuum. Think about emotional I maturity. Just, I just turned 25. Just okay. Like a week before. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, 1977. Yeah. You would have, you would have been 25 in three days or whatever. Right. Yep. And so I was 37. I was 37 and a half. <laughs> and not that I still keep track of halves, but, uh, I, I might have, I might, I was so immature. I might have at that time. <laughs> if I might have still celebrated half birthdays. So you get my point. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I was wiser. I was much wiser than I would have been at 25. I mean, at 25, I was I was still huffing cocaine at parties. I hadn't even tried cocaine at parties yet. Think about that. And I hadn't even moved to LA yet. And I, I hadn't sown oats and all this shit. And it's like I almost have the I almost have the luxury of being grandfatherly with my children. Now I won't have I won't have the luxury of you know racing them to first base when they're teenagers because of it. But yeah. from a psychological standpoint, there's so many benefits. And I think I think that's all it is. And if I'm lucky enough to be around when I'm a grandparent, I probably will be just as floored as you, but even more so because I'll be in my 80s. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that and actually, and, and that's part of it. One of the things I wanted to mention, because I talked to people that are, you know, older. And I remember as a parent saying, you know, to the child, you need to grow up. Now, actually, when I talk to elderly people, you know, like riding with me, you have to act more like a child. I mean, I have that kind of appreciation for the way a child dresses the world. I mean, look at Cash and Sailor and Talon. I mean, it's like they're fearless and they take on these things. And I see now elderly people that are very habitual and very withdrawn and losing out on life. So... Yeah, I didn't have that when I was 25. When I was raising you, it was more, okay, how to make this person have experiences, go through life, but get them ready for adulthood. But, I, most, but also, Dad, but also, Dad, preoccupied with your own, your own struggles. I mean, really, in a, in, a, in a way that I don't think a 40-year-old either is or is able to manage better. I mean, at 25, 26, 27, there especially when you don't have a lot of money 
and you don't have a stable family. And also you don't have a stable family. I mean, your parents are alcoholics. You have virtually no relationship with your siblings. So you're, you're, you're on your own. Yeah. And so you're, 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 you're not in a position to sit around and, and, and you don't have, you don't have a, you don't have a, 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 a life raft. You're, you're treading water on your own. So you don't have the luxury of sitting there and breaking down all these, my day and, you know, all the, all the little nuances of my day. And how does this me relate to what we're trying to teach him? You're just fucking trying to survive. You know, that's absolutely true. And, and we did work, both mom and I worked, you know, while you kids were young, we had those weekend jobs at bars, you know, making right. chips. But that's what paid the rent and paid a lot, bunch of other stuff. Right. Yeah. How old was how how old were you when your dad passed away? He passed in uh, 1974, so I was 22. You're 22 years old. Do you, despite the fact, well, what was your relationship like with him? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but I, I mean, how would you assess your relationship with him? Well, you you know, you go through. This is this is. I mean, everybody has this. What is reality is, is what you go through. And it's only in reflection that you can sit back and when you see other people's realities that you realize how unique your reality was. Um, really didn't have any relationship to speak of. I mean, I talked to him every once in a while, but I But was, when you were young? What about yeah, when you were very young? No, but I, I mean... I did real well in school, and what I would do is, is come home, and nobody was involved in my little league. Nobody was involved in anything that I really did. You know, they they weren't active in that regard. I just kind of did what I did, uh, oftentimes coming home from school and going upstairs and reading or play outside. I mean, they, there was no involvement whatsoever, i got to be honest with you. I mean, so well, how were you able to do well in school without any support from home? Did you understand at a young level the importance, or did it come easy no, for you? No, it wasn't important. It wasn't like I had to. I think I had teachers that, you know, I knew that they liked that stuff, so maybe that was good. Um, curiosity, you know. I enjoyed doing it. You enjoyed learning. I, I enjoyed, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's always been important to me. That's, in fact, that's probably one of the greatest joys I have. I, I enjoy learning um, different things. And I really, I've always had. I remember as a youngster reading the World Book Encyclopedia, you know. <laughs> literally? Yeah. You literally read the World Book Encyclopedia. <laughs> that sounds kind of nerdy, really. I mean. Well, but I mean, have you, if you ever look, there's a fascinating, like, all kinds of stuff, you know. So I mean, um, no, I mean I had a, a number of friends and stuff like that, but there was there was no home life. So I mean, there really wasn't. So and that that I I've always tried to ascertain what did that mean to me as a grown up. Uh, there's not a lot of dependency on anybody. No, like, like you mentioned, you you didn't uh, create friendships that you had strong need for. No, right. I, wasn't planning on anybody being around much longer. Well, what's interesting too is I've always thought that uh, you kind of raised me in a way where you didn't necessarily value your role to me 
as much as I might have. And what I mean by that is, uh, you, you found a way to, to almost thrive despite very little relationship with your dad. So the relationship that I have with you in anything beyond nothing is like novelty. Like, um, I always got the sense that you were like, he'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. If I'm here, I'm, I'm, you know, more than involved. I'm more than interested in, 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 in being there. And I love them. I always, we always felt the love, but I always felt like the relationship was just, uh, what's a good word? Not a bonus. It was like a bonus. Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of like. Well, yeah, I, I understand exactly because there wasn't a. Uh, you mean, were the opposite of a helicopter parent, in that it was like I'm here, but but there's real value in you figuring it out on your own, and that maybe is the most important thing. And and I'm not sure that it was even that conscious. It was like I assume you're going to figure this out. Uh, I'll be there, but I'm not going to spoon feed you. Um, one of, one of the things, cause I knew we were going to have this, but one of the things I remember most as a parent was when you went to kindergarten on that first day of kindergarten, I forgot the name of your teacher, Miss Markinary. Uh, Markinary. I said to her, look, this guy likes to learn. Don't screw it up. That's all I asked. In other words, all I wanted for you, the most important thing was fun learning. Yeah. You know? Don't get wrapped up in anything, making values as to whether this was better, this was better, this was better. You know, I just try, never tried to mold you into my own image because I wasn't even sure what that would be. Um, you know, there's some people that raise their kids to be attorneys because they're attorneys. I never had that. I no, and I never got that sense either. Oh. I never got that sense at all. Yeah. yeah. I got, you know, the sense I got was that you were kind of in awe of being a dad. And kind of been awe of, of me, mom more so than you. But I can remember being very young and getting a sense that you guys were in awe. Awe of what you created. Awe of what I was able to do at a young age. Awe of the love you felt because you didn't get the sense that your parents felt that. And I think mom didn't get the sense that her dad, I mean her mom obviously, grandma yeah. obviously yeah. is that way. But I remember you guys almost being in awe Yeah, that's parents. Probably, probably and that being like a prevail, kind of a prevailing emotion like holy wow this is amazing this is yeah. amazing <laughs> yeah. oh, this, this is this was well it was more than i expected okay and you were young and you guys were young so i yeah. think awe is just a general like perspective anyway it's like holy shit the metrodome is so huge ah <laughs> awesome this is our first time on a plane as a family ah i think awe was just like i just remember there being a lot of awe yeah it, it, Probably was because it was none of those things that we had experienced, nothing that I was even anticipating experience. Um, yeah, and, and you were very much a part of our lives, and I wasn't anticipating that. I mean, it seems it seems really naive and and ridiculous to say, well, I had a child, but I wasn't expecting him to be that big of a part of my life. <laughs> Because no, but nobody was. But yeah, but it, said, nobody was a big part of my life. I don't think that's that ridiculous. If 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 anybody understands where you came from and how disconnected you were from your family emotionally, yeah. it, it makes perfect sense that you would be sort of blown away that you had 
sentiment <laughs> towards <laughs> somebody related to you. <laughs> and the fact that you still do is a minor miracle, really. It well, speaks I, volumes. It speaks volumes about fatherhood and the concept. Well, no, it actually was one of the things that I mentioned earlier. We're on this journey. Um, and I can reflect not. No, I don't think anybody can reflect perfectly. But I can reflect a development of feelings. You know, you always think in terms of what you develop intellectually. Mm-hmm. But I can relect, uh, recollect, recollect feeling development that I never had before. I mean, was give me an example. What do you give me an example? Well, I was an asshole, but I didn't care about my parents. I mean, mm-hmm. there, I mean, it just wasn't there any kind of love there. Okay, yeah, that's which frightening when I think about it that you know I was like like I said very popular very well liked very nice guy but <laughs> feeling was yeah know, I think you know I think that's a little bit of a byproduct of that generation but maybe but maybe even more extreme than I've heard I mean I I hear a lot of people your age sort of you know like you know Raj and Sue you know my friends parents things like that where it's like there's not like an over emotional perspective on their home life or their parents or their upbringing or, you know, mom's an, an exception to that. Cause she's so nostalgic, despite the fact that there's some things she probably doesn't want to think about, but it, for the most part, this idea of like nostalgia from upbringing, at least, at least in the circle of, of people I know your age, there's not a lot of it, but, but, but even by those standards, your disconnect seems maybe even extreme. Well, and, and one of the things I recognize, I don't know how much it impacted, but historically, my parents were probably the first that kids weren't uh, economic asset. They were a liability. Whereas prior to that, you sent your kid out to work. Sounds so businessy. And suddenly the social norms and maybe some legal norms, because they Kids couldn't get jobs before 12 or 16 in some places. All of a sudden, you're stuck. And I don't think our parents knew what to do with children. Now it's obviously changed, and you know it's it's. But our parents were like, okay, what do you do? And they it wasn't like they had a great deal of uh, of involvement in our lives. Some people did. I mean, there's some coaches in little league games and things like that. But for the most part. No. What do you so if we can speak in broad strokes, what do you think that style of parenting did to you guys in terms of your view of the world, for one, and and, and then how you raised your kids too? Well, when I, I can only speak for when you say you raised your kids, it's what mom Okay. Oh, you froze up. You still there? Yeah family okay say that again you froze up for a second so what'd you say with mom said mom when you look at the concept of family and what i feel now this is what i learned from mom i have very little concept of family family meant nothing i had a a grandmother that i adored and i go went to visit her sometimes um but we weren't close to cousins we wasn't close to my brothers and sisters wasn't close to my parents so the whole concept of family comes, at least in our part, from mom and from grandma. Great. Mm. Uh, and I learned that. So how that is generationally, 
were there more people like me? No, I, I think there are people that had families and we remember hearing about, you know, people having, I mean, we had Thanksgiving dinners and stuff like that, but other yeah. than that, um, it would, I think it would be generationally, I think it would be very dependent on what the family itself was like. And I think to this day, there are a lot of families that don't have a great deal of cohesion. I mean, right. you hear about the, the kids. I think that's actually one of the problems. Where in my generation, it wasn't abnormal. I think now if you hear about parents that don't get involved, they're actually based on social norms. They see, I, you. I mean, see, they, I actually, but I actually, th- yeah, they, they do get ridiculed. But I actually think we have a problem the other way now. I think they're too involved. And I think, oh, I, I think part of what we're seeing play out is is this this maturing of a generation of kids who literally never got sunburned. They never even let them get sunburned. Yeah. So somehow, you know, I don't know to what degree. Uh, you know, you're the psychologist, so I don't I don't know how you even break this down because there's so many layers to it. But it's like, how did we end up? How did we end up with a style of parenting? You know, baby boomers' parents were sort of disconnected, let's just say, generally speaking, mm-hmm. or, you know, for lack of a better term, to two generations later, these kids are so fucking coddled that they, they literally don't feel like they should be put out in any way. And by put out, I mean, like, they shouldn't have to pay their dues climbing a corporate ladder. They shouldn't be made to feel threatened, you know, in any way. They, they, they shouldn't feel uncomfortable in any way. They're, they're, you know, you talk about the evolution of psychology, the, the, the awareness of how they feel in every microsecond of their day is, is so important that, they, that they, they, actually, they actually, you know, design their lives around that stuff. There's no, this idea that you would maybe grind for a better end, right? Like mm-hmm. you would grind through a tough job or you would grind through the, you know, the, the shitty stage of, I don't know, basic training or this whole idea that there's a greater good on the other side of a grind. That's bullshit to them. That's bullshit. How did we get there in two generations? Paying their dues and I think it's a matter of, first of all, there's a lot more social media. Originally, there was television, okay? So you started seeing role models. My parents didn't have television growing up. I had it. Um, But then the amount of social media before Facebook and any of those things was still starting to expand. You're starting to go to movies. These are all rare events. So our generation started seeing examples of other things. Uh, all the TV programs were these ideal families, Father Knows Best, Donna Reed. So we started creating that kind, you know, seriously. <laughs> kind of, wow, this is what it's happening. Leave it to Beaver. Leave it to Beaver was another one. My three uh, sons. Exactly. And there was this involvement and learning and all this other stuff. I think that was the genesis of it. And then suddenly it kind of takes off. Um there gets to be this level of competition among parents as to who can get their kid there. Um, I mean, you're a long way from my kid making money. So now 
he becomes my child becomes my my entity my development i mean basically they were like they're like toys my what i've noticed which which i think is really tragic is in our mind's eye when i was growing up 18 was the magic number 18 year adult in other words i've always thought you have 18 years to raise that child doesn't mean that you're never going to see him again. Doesn't mean that you won't support him. But basically, the person should be pretty much on their own. Okay? Mm-hmm. That, that was the goal. Now, give or take a few years, a few months, or something like that. But that ought to be, in the back of your mind, they ought to be that kind of maturity. Our government, our parents, everything now looks at, what, 30, 35 as when they ought to be on their own. Um uh, that blows me away because I think that's totally. But I was one of those kids in my 20s who, you know, when things got lean, I would still come to you or I'd still leaned on you guys for emotional support or I had a place to stay. I mean, I, I wasn't even close to that guy at 18. That was a mess. Totally, not totally independent, but you were doing a lot of independent things. And, and it wasn't like we were coddling you. Um, yeah, we made you ask. We're never going to turn you away. But no, it's. Now it's, it's, I think that's just the norm and where. Why though? Parenting is what's happened. What's happened though. I want to know what's happened. I want to, from your perspective, I want to know what's, what's happened in that in two generations, we, we've gone from this like fierce, independent, almost like a, almost callous type view of relationships and parenting and, 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 you know, just workplace to this, to this compassion first. And and don't get me wrong, compassion has a place. I mean, if we're civilized, then we should be compassionate. But but we now we almost incentivize people to be weak. And we used to people used to hide their weakness. Like your weakness was like a like a like an attack vector, right? Like something that could be exploited and used against you. And and you for for everything you were worth would hide your weakness. To, to, and by the way, to an extreme, that is probably unhealthy. It is unhealthy. Sure. But, but now it's like we've somehow created this environment where there, there is way more incentive in being weak than there is in being strong. And in fact, in fact, your strength, dad, is, is seen as a, a sign of toxicity, is a sign of... Um, Aggressiveness, arrogance, aggressiveness. You, you're, you're actually the face of Satan. You're a white. You're not middle aged. You're, you know, I don't want to say you're elderly, but you're Trump's peer in terms of age. You're Satan. You came from the gutter with two alcoholic parents, poor as shit, and and you're the face of privilege. You're the face of Satan in this country. That's where we're at right now. And we don't have to get overly political because you and I both know that. You could choose your words as carefully as possible and still find yourself in a heap of shit because we're not about we're not we're not about really talking about the truth, extracting the good points in a situation, but then also talking about the underlying sort of bullshit that's mixed in. You can't do that. So, you know, we got to be careful about how this is phrased. But but how did we get to a point where you you, you really there's no incentive to be tough. There's no incentive to f- pull yourself up. There's no, there's no 
There's no pats on the back for the people that grind. We don't want to see a story about the kid who has, you know, your skin color and is doing well. How do we get there in two generations? I mean, no, no, no short task to answer this question. <laughs> By the way, are we going to have a break in any kind? Of- <laughs> do you need a cigarette? We can take a break. Can't you vape in the house? Mom isn't home, is she? I don't vape. I don't have a vape, but no, she's not. You home. don't have a vape? It's in the garage somewhere. Look me in the eye. You don't have a vape? I don't have a vape that's plugged in and charged. Oh, okay. okay. I just thought we were getting to the truth here today. All right, that's fine. That seems like a honest answer. Huh? You want to take a break? Yeah, let's take one because I got some thoughts. But I've, okay. I try to I try to couch them in politically correct terms. All right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave this recording though, so that when I when I when I uh, upload it, I don't have to pull two different files. So just go have your cigarette. Oh, okay. Be, it'd be like four minutes. Yeah, take your time. I gotta stretch my leg too. All right. I went and made a Jack diet. <laughs> oh, okay, perfect. Um, okay, can I talk three things? Yeah. You're going to address what you, you're talking about, because I had given some thought, not to that direct question. Yeah, yeah, that was a kind of a rambling question, but and it's, no, but, it's too layered to even really answer in, in less than But as, as lessons that I believe I've observed, okay, over time, one, as you mentioned earlier, the introduction of psychology has has changed the world, okay? Um, when I was growing up, there was no psychology today. Nobody even, there was a psychology class, but it was talked about rats and positive reinforcement and things like that. Uh, you either did positive reinforcement Skinner or you did Freud, which said, how do you feel about this? You're crazy and stuff like that. But now psychology is interjected in almost all of our behavior, okay? People are amateur psychologists, and, you know, some of them pretty astute, but it it becomes an explanation, okay, so that people now are trying to understand the psychological elements. Going back to my the thing I just mentioned, hey, it used to be when I was growing up, you got rewarded if you did this work like every other rat. Okay, that was the big psychology of the time, unless you were really crazy. Now it's like, how do you feel? How is that impacting you? I believe this. And you see this in news media, you see this in social interactions where quasi psychological uh, observations are interjected as if they're facts. Okay, and they're half baked, many of them. Okay, it's as simple as that, but everybody's a psychologist. So that's point one. Second one, I was going to tell you one of the things, if you asked me, because I thought what might he ask me, one of the most important observations that I made, okay, and I love this one, because I, I just reflect on it all the time. When Nico was going to kindergarten, okay, I asked her simply, hey, are you excited about this? And she said, yes, but I really don't see the sense of it because I already can count to 100, okay? My niece, Nico, yes. Yeah, um, your niece, Nico. That's how everybody feels, okay? If, if I look around the world, everybody feels like they have the answers 
that quest for wisdom is is not there. I don't see it very often. It's it's I'm comfortable. Yeah, I may not know this about nuclear physics, but it's a very specific activity. But as far as overall wisdom, understanding, etc., all of us are Nikos. All of us think, I yeah, there's more I can learn. But for the most part, I've got it all together because I can count to 100. And you, I know in your life, you've witnessed people and you've had discussions with people that you've shaken your head, but metaphorically what they're responding to is just what Nico said. What do you mean? I can already count to 100 and you're trying to tell them there's more to it than that. But in their mind's eye, they're complete. You see what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, but I, I, so I have a follow-up question to that. So, so that's a child's perspective, which, wow. but, but listen, but I understand that. But at some point, you, 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 you start to understand what you don't know, okay, as you, go, as you gain wisdom. It seems to me that we're all suspended. I shouldn't say all. So many of us are suspended in a state of, of childlike arrogance perspective yes insulation whatever and 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 that's what i want to know i want to know why is that is that social media is that the rise of psychology is it the way they've been parented i i know it's the answer is it's all of these but 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 dad i i look around and i get a lot of flack for this on facebook and stuff because it, it always comes across as so arrogant and oh look at me and stuffy and part, part of that is my fault because i always go for gut punches because that's what social media is but i i always equate this behavior to to children it feels like children to me wanting another holiday holidays are fucking children they are you get no, old enough you, and you, who gives a fuck about a holiday dad yeah, and that I'm doesn't a... mean that doesn't mean i don't think juneteenth has significance i can only imagine that if, if I sat around and the stories that have been passed down to me from my ancestors were of oppression and, and, and real, you know, abuse, that that would have significance to me. But, but I also, well, who the fuck cares about a holiday? What does that mean? The government acknowledges that way you get, you get a paid off day. Okay. Okay. That's a childlike perspective. To, this idea that my opinions are, are so important that if I don't get them, I throw tantrums. That's what children do. This idea that it, it's all childlike to me. And so when you use Nico in his example, it's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. But you know what? Nico will eventually not be in kindergarten. Why are these 20, 25, 30, 35-year-olds, to, to me, and I'm not saying I'm right, but why does it seem like to me that they're still kindergartners in the terms of the way they handle adversity the way they pursue you know endeavors the the nature of the relationships what the fuck is that okay but all right but that that's an outcome what i'm trying to do is say what are the causes and elements and then let's talk about the outcomes the outcome okay. is childish naive behavior okay so one of them is is simply this this intellectual arrogance, and, and this has always been the case. There's, you know, the term sophomoric. When you first go away to college, you're a freshman, you have anxiety, you have 
uh, apprehension, you have respect, but you get even after one year, okay, you get a level of comfort and some success, and then you feel like you know it all. Not in the sense that I know my entire field, but that's what sophomoric behavior is. Sophomoric okay. behavior isn't immature. The, the, real, the, the proper definition is that phase that people go through as sophomores having past apprehension and getting a level of comfort, but still stupid as shit, okay? But thinking that they know it all. Now, no. that by itself, and that little bit of Nico in there, and it says, I already know. I passed childhood. I'm going to the kindergarten. But, you know, yeah, I recognize there's something else more I can do. Then, which I think has been happening now, okay, that makes it unique in the world is we, we all seek social approval, okay? We, that, that's probably, human nature. That's human nature. It's probably the biggest motivator, uh, maybe even so, more so than money because money is really just the utility for social approval. In other words, I want the approval of this group of people and I need money so they can see me driving a Mercedes or I need, it may not be money, it may be, I need friendships. Do you think this goes back eons? I mean, is it a, is oh, it a fun? Social approval was always important. You but do. right now in this world, social approval has, has escalated to a, a primary well it's re what it's done is it's it's re it's rewired people to not even realize that that's their value system the value system is instantly tied into social approval in a way that's so expedited it's as fast as social media itself it, it, it's that, absolutely and people get validated because you may not validate them but they'll find some people validating that and they will seek validation and this is not wisdom. This is all sophomoric shit, okay? Wisdom takes years, okay? And you never, it's like a never-ending journey, my mind's eye. Um, do I know things? Yes. Do I have an understanding? Yes. Do I have some clarity? And you can look down and say, Nico, there's more than, you know, you got to count past 100. But those people, if they get sufficient social approval and validation, They'll say, fuck you. I don't know. I'm here. I'm ready to make these marks. And you that's my, my belief, is that social approval in the lack of a, of a, a drive for wisdom and understanding. There's very little respect there, actually. You know, um, there's very little respect for it. Like you said, all those things, learning on the job, uh, experience you know um well what's interesting to various, me is various life situations and even though we have a society that's completely open we don't have an empathy towards recognizing it and taking the best and and whatever it's like suddenly it's validated what i what i feel this morning is valid okay and there's no upside to it. So we get this crystallized at this immaturity. Uh, yeah. that's, 
that's you see what I'm saying? That's yeah. the way I look at it. I don't know if that, I explained that. I, I wonder if, you know, you, you said elderly aren't respected and it's it's something that it it's something that's bothers me because you know you look you look at nature and the old lion, the old sage, while he's not able to do a lot of things, is so valued for for his understanding of the lay of the land or where the good hunting spots are. And you look at our society and there's there's almost no reverence for people who have been around and have saw things firsthand and understand things and and well and have a broader perspective. Yeah, there's no value We're for it. Yet. A little bit later. There's no value. There's no value for what you know. And and I wonder if it's because I can Google things and that's replaced this idea of you passing on to me some sacred information that I would not be able to get if I didn't tap into a relationship with you or or revere you enough to revere me, to pass it on to me, if you didn't think I was worthy of that information. And now we're father's son, so you probably always would, but let's say you're a coworker of mine. You may not give me competitive intelligence if I was not worthy or was your friend or had given you some level of reverence at some point. But but maybe none of that fucking matters in this age when I can Google shit. And I mean, you and I both know that that's not as valuable, but somebody who's grown up with Google, you know, as part of their world, they'll never understand that. They have access to information. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. Like, yeah, you, you're old skin. But here's the problem. Here's you're just old skin. Is one aspect of wisdom, Okay. Yeah, but you're wise enough to understand that. So how, okay. how does a young person get that perspective? They don't. Well, and unless they they have a reverence. If, if, if they have, this is what bothers me. If they have a respect for diversity, okay? Not just recognize diversity, but you respect diversity. But that's not what we're looking at here. Now it's disrespected if it doesn't match my element of social approval. Right, that's childlike. If that's childlike. It's in the neighborhood. But the neighborhood now goes around the world because I can get enough people on social media to say you're absolutely right. Yeah. And the need for social approval, and Brenda and I have seen this among our peers, by the way, so it's not a young thing. Uh, one of my classmates from uh, high school was involved with getting the 50-year reunion and all this other stuff. And I've known her since sixth grade. She makes a post, okay, that talks about the 1830 Andrew Jackson Trail of Tears. No explanation. Just, you know, this Trail of Tears that Andrew Jackson sent these Indians uh, out of their, you know, the southeast and into lands that, you know, the United States had bought for them because we won, all right? I mean, people are territorial, people are tribal. I mean, you and I have talked about that a number of times. That happened in 19 or 1830. So I comment on the post. Why are you doing this at this time? I mean, are you trying to talk about how tribal uh, it's influence is yeah. around forever? Are you trying to say, by the way, blacks, it's White people have done this to Indians. Are you, I mean, why at this time, George Floyd, are you posting this? I never got a response. Yeah, well, you, and you know the answer. Yeah, we know. I know why she did it. 
as well. And it's it's like, grow up. I mean, that is not wise. You're, I mean, if you think about what you're doing, you're jumping on a bandwagon. You're trying to let the world know, oh, I've got a heart and sympathy. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I've got grandchildren. They don't need to have this message that you're, you know. The, let me ask you this, though, then. Are historically, which are going to be interpreted by some people as saying, like, Look, there's a genetic flaw in old white men. I mean, it's like no, you're. I mean, there's. I mean, you're, you're the face of of the devil, and so am I. And which is fine, but going forward, it's my sons too, and that's that's the thing that I struggle with, and that's why it's emotional for me. Let me let me ask you this: Why, you know, if if there's no value in i shouldn't say no value if 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 things have changed so that there's more value in posting something like she did in a society that's so you know driven by social media and the behavior it's to call it even social media now is almost sounds like it's still this like entity this like unique thing when really it's so ingrained in the way we communicate that it it's not even accurate anymore it just kind of is society it it if that's the case and she gets rewarded for that, maybe that's where the value is. I mean, you know, that's maybe exactly. this idea that we're imposing old values in terms of, hey, don't fan the flames or, hey, put this in context or all those things that seem like the right thing to do are rooted in old values. The reason they're the right thing to do in our mind is because they're rooted in old values. If, well, if she's getting what she wants. No, in, individually, you want social approval. You want to be. But there's so much capital in social approval now that you can't. It's like it's the most important thing in the world to people. It's literally as. So, so we, you know, I said earlier, it's like the, the, you used to be incentivized to hide your weakness. You literally had the incentive for survival. Let's just assume we all want to survive on an innate level, regardless of politics, creed, color, anything. Let's just, let's all assume that's one truth that we want to survive. Okay. Yeah. In order to survive, hiding your weakness was of the utmost importance for eons, okay? Yeah. We, we now live in a society where if you have a handicap, we put you on the field at halftime and stand up and cheer for you. If you struggle with something, we give you the best parking spot. If you, um, you know, if, if you are, a, you struggle taking a test, we, a lot of times will modify the circumstances for you, if not the whole class. So in many ways, that script has been flipped and you, you have more incentive to not only have a weakness, but make sure everybody knows about it. So if that's the case and your survival is dependent on you putting your worst foot forward, so to speak, how can you really argue with what they're all doing? No, you, no that's why I said, I mean, First of all, what happened? Well, psychology, we need to be understanding. We need to reflect. We need to uh, have an empathetic uh, viewpoint. We need emotional intelligence, not just regular intelligence. I mean, it's been flooded in the, in the past couple of decades. Um, and that's not bad stuff, okay? It's not bad in and of itself, but they threw out the baby and kept the bathwater because it's like, no, what about... 
qualifications? What about aptitudes? What about abilities? What about motivation? What about a sense of responsibility? Responsibility? No, I don't have a responsibility because I have a verifiable government-endorsed weakness <laughs> that allows me to do this. Which and is, a, by the way, is a strength. If we want to be a mature society, we don't disregard that um, because that would be very cold and calculating to say only the, the best survive, you know, the fittest. And those are what's, you know, pounding right now. Certainly we want equal opportunity, but I agree, I think I agree with you, that we've got overboard to say, wait a minute, weaknesses are now assets, okay? And why, what, what, what's it, why is it overboard? Why is it overboard? And I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. And as a psychologist, you're as, as you know, appropriate a person to answer this as anybody. Why, why is it overboard if it's, if it's the way things that are being restructured? And, and survival is dependent on you being a pussy, for lack of a better term. Like, well, it doesn't, you know, do, does it get me anywhere now to have sort of thick skin, to be aggressive, to be, uh, you know, you know, to have the ability to withstand criticism? I mean, where does that get me now in, in today's culture? Well, okay, and that's, again, you're looking, and you're guilty as everybody if you're looking for uh, your fulfillment with social approval, okay? Because, I mean, it, it's been well documented. One of the, And I gave you this book 20 years ago, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, and success doesn't always... I thought you meant the Fab Five about the Michigan freshman. <laughs> Talking about a different book? Yeah, a different book. Well, uh, fuck, okay. I read Fab Five. Yeah. <laughs> the other one's gaining dust. But but I love this, and I, I use it this kind of a, a guidestone. There are three stages. You're dependent, you're independent, and you're interdependent. And dependent just means, for all the easiest to explain, to say childlike, okay? You... God damn it. It, freezes, it froze up. You should seek to be first independent. I can take care of myself. I can pay my mortgage. I can do these kind of things. And then. Hold on, Pop. You're freezing up. Independent. And then it's like teamwork. You know what? You and I together will can go further than either one of us can go independently. Okay? That's what interdependent means. We can achieve higher. Okay, that model is thrown out, but it's the fundamental model of personal success, at least the one I've adopted. And it's usually, I mean, it's most people look at it that way. Now, dependency, as you're saying, is not, we don't have to go past dependency. Um, how do I get immediate reinforcement, better parking spot? Uh, housing allowance, um, whatever. I mean, how can I still be basically dependent and dependent as childlike? And that's why we're reinforcing this childlike mentality. Nobody is even seeking, I should say, 
nobody. But I mean, we should be all seeking independence. Like I said longer ago, earlier in this conversation, not long ago, because uh, I've known you for a while. Um, you know, yeah, it used to be at 18. Hey, you're independent. I remember my dad saying, it's not like you can't come home, but I assume you won't have a shirt on when you do. Okay. That sounds like love. That sounds like he loved you. I don't know what you're talking that, about. That's, yeah, but that's being independent. But that actually was. Then you seek out, and this is where things, you know, is interdependence. How can I build relationships that make us mutually more successful? Okay. And that's where these people are starting to, you know, they get, it, 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 I would like to think they're ethical when they do that, but, you know, that's where you get even greater success personal and financially in other ways. Can I ask you um, something? Keep in mind, at one time, it was opportunity. We wasn't equal. Outcome. We yeah. want equal opportunity. Yeah. Um, we, well, we, see, equal opportunity. The thing about equal opportunity, Dad, equal opportunity still puts the onus on the individual, which... I think what we've seen here in the in the in the last ten years as social media has exploded is there's not a lot of onus on the individual anymore. It it's like this. First of all, we're measuring outcomes regardless of who the people are. It's like if if it's not fifty fifty in terms of you know gender or race or whatever, there's something inherently wrong, and and, and there's no accountability individual by individual. And so that's where it's like, and by the way, you're always going to have that. There's always going to be a variable in there that comes down to that person's drive, that person's willingness to overcome. How fucking hungry are they? Despite maybe successes already. I mean, Tom Brady's a psychopath. Somehow that guy's got 400 million in the bank and the, the hottest supermodel wife of all the supermodels, his bones hurt and he's fucking hungry. His belly's empty. Okay. That's that's sociopathic, really. Yeah. He's driven by something insane. And so there's a variable, a hunger variable, that will always affect the outcome numbers. Well, and if, if we're after equal outcome, you, you're basically muting the human component. You're, you're saying you want robots. You can say you're after all this other stuff, but if we're really just creating outcomes, all we're doing is writing an algorithm which means all we are is a robot, which means we're removing culture, removing everything that makes us human, if you think about it in broad terms. Well, I agree with you. Equal opportunity is... The is, other thing, I guess my perspective on it is, is also when you look at that, okay, you can always take those, but we have done a piss poor job and nobody's even addressing this, okay? Let's say... There's a group of people that are not given equal opportunity, okay? They're having the same opportunities. It, it appears as if white versus black, but that's what they mean by white privilege. But no, they come from families that don't uh, cherish. Maybe the father's not there, or they don't cherish success, or they don't have the same confidence. It's like, then what are we doing for those root causes? Okay. How, we how, how do we legislate values, is what but, you're saying. No, what I'm saying is, rather than just handing out checks, how mm -hmm. do we say, wait a minute, we're giving you a place to live, but it's dependent on you taking care of that place. By the way, 
you can have level A if you do those things that build pride, build sense of ownership. Yeah, you're you're 100 right. And so you know, the, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is is as I watch the riots and I yeah. One of the things I've been my entire life has been the same basic thing that has said, wait a minute, you know, are we what have we done outside of doled out checks? And that's that's to me. Well, so so let me ask you this. So so the things that we've done up to this point, you and I would argue seem like. Great effort, I think a lot of, you know, black people, African-American people today are aren't satisfied with it. So it's not enough. It's not working. You know what I'm saying? So, so what we're doing obviously isn't correct. Whatever we've done up to this point, if it's, if it's, if it's created this kind of, uh, unrest isn't correct. What, what can we do? Like what, can, how do we connect the people to the system? And this is the thing I've been thinking about the last, you know, couple of weeks. It's like, I watch, you know, and I understand that the riots and all the destruction is it's very layered because you have you have you have groups in there that are are basically trained to create a scene versus peaceful protesters who feel passionately about a cause versus kids that are just down there because they've been quarantined and want to be out. I mean, it's very hard to figure out exactly what the prevailing mindset is. But 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 what I basically see is I see a segment of our population, majority of them black, who feel disconnected. Okay, they feel disconnected from the system. And I think I told you this analogy a couple of weeks ago on the phone. It's like if I looked at Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and all the money they've earned and all the success they've had and all the companies they've built and all the adoration. And, and I I looked at them and I, and I felt like it was something I could never accomplish, that they were they were operating in a sphere that I could never penetrate. I would have nothing but disdain. Forget jealousy. It would be like animosity. But I don't. I don't have animosity. Yeah, I have jealousy, but I have I, I have a sense that I could do that. Now, it might be delusional at this point in my life, but I, I, I do feel like I could create something where I could generate that kind of wealth. I could have that kind of success. I could be adored by people, um, which, of course, would come with you know people hating you, too. But I feel like I could get there. Why do I feel that way? Because I feel like I'm part of the system that produced them. When I see these people interviewed, I see this shit on social media and I, and I see the fires and the looting and all that. I see a group of people that don't feel connected to that system. They're burning down buildings that aren't part of their neighborhood, even though they literally are part of their neighborhood, but they're not part of that. So, and, and by the way, this is right up your alley. If you want to talk about connecting assembly line workers with executives, yeah, it's essentially the same kind of thing. These people were sabotaging the cars they were building. What does that sound like? That yeah. sounds like burning down the buildings in your fucking neighborhood to yeah, me. Exactly right. Okay, so how do we, as but, a guy who's a father of organizational change, I want to know why and I want to know how we can connect them because that's the solution. It's not writing a check. I mean, well, reparations are what they are, but they're not going to change anything, Dad. If, we, if, if it's just flat reparations, that money will be in the hands of wealthy people in five years and you'll have just as much unrest and references to, to 400 year old slavery. So how do we connect people to a system that they feel disconnected from? Well, and okay. This might, do you need a cigarette for this one? No, my mom's home now. So <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, this is fairly heavy, but I mean, 
keep in mind that I worked with, you know, the government for some period. God damn it. Every time you say something important, you you freeze up. It's almost like either my wife's on the Wi-Fi or mom's on the Wi-Fi. Hey, hold on. Start over. You froze up just as you started talking. Every time you say something really important, you freeze up. So let's try. It could be at my end. No, but part of it is is gaining a, a, a greater depth of understanding of what truly is the barriers. Okay, I ironically drove during this whole thing. Okay. I drive, can tell you drive Uber. We should probably say you're an Uber driver now. Ninety percent of the people, blacks that I gave, and sometimes I ask a question directly. No, I don't feel. I don't feel biased. Okay. They ask. No, they. they you, you just said they ask. You just said they ask you outwardly if you feel biased. I did. You I asked them. I think I gained a, an extraordinary relationship with my writers at times. I should tell so, you. Something. But restate that. Well, yeah, that was the time to tell us. But restate that to me. You ask them if they have a bias. Well, yeah, but I mean, there's there's a major uprising taking place. There's rioting. Uh, there's protests. I'm giving a ride to a black person. I engage with them, and after a couple of few minutes, five, ten, depending on the ride, I might ask them directly and say, "All right, can I ask you?" I don't understand this as an old white man. Have you felt a bias, you know, being black? They said, to be honest with you, no, I haven't. So it's a socially created, I mean, there are a lot of- very Well, you have a small sample size. And okay, you're right. And so this is the problem. Part of it is, is by the way, this problem that we have, how extensive is it? And who are the people that are truly feeling this kind of bias. A lot of people are getting upset that it's because it's saying like, wait a minute, I've had some successes. Okay. I don't want those minimized. Okay. So that's part of it. Is there still some challenges? Yeah. There's, there's still racism, but it's not nearly the degree it was. I could tell you back in the sixties and seventies. And when people start talking about some of this stuff, yeah, but you know, part of what they're saying, Dad, is is your your so, so and this is the catchy thing that they're doing, is your you've been so insulated from it that your your privilege is so inherent that you can't even see it. So your opinion on whether or not it's gotten better is irrelevant. I mean, that's it's sort of how they get you with religion by 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 playing the faith card. Like whenever you have a a, a question that starts to really challenge the heart of religion, you go to the faith card and you can't really argue against faith. So with, with, with this new definition of racism, your right privilege is such that you are blind to it. So you can't really, there's nothing you can say about that. Well, I, I, under, I understand that if that's the tack that you want to be taking, but I don't think it's as widespread of a sentiment as, as the news media and others are suggesting. It is a very socially approved thing to say. Mm. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Then it's what's the degree of it, okay? Um, The bottom line is what we always have to keep in mind is we are DNA-wise tribal. Mm -hmm. We always have 
I mean, I think I've told you these examples. When I was growing up, my grandmother told me not to, a Norwegian, don't trust the Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. Yeah. I mean, That's know, absurd. It seems absurd now, but. It seems absurd now, but I mean, it's kind of like, but over time, you start building levels of trust. You start finding things that they're, uh, wait a minute, there's similarities. Um, we certainly had that post-World War II where, you know, uh, Japanese and Asian descent people suffered bias, okay? And it's understandable because they were, a, especially, I mean, if it's a, we're all tribal, but if it's a tribe that's very easily identified by either garments or looks or skin colors, there's a natural apprehension, okay? We've got to understand that, okay? The only way for the integration is to start realizing that, oh, by the way, um, there aren't those differences. The worst thing these people can do is bring back when it was working best, it wasn't Black Lives Matters. Uh, I can't even understand it. I can't remember the expression. Well, we use, but, but it was. How far back are you talking? Like the 60s and 70s. Black Panthers? No, not Black Panthers, but there's an expression that basically was more unification rather than diversive. Um, you know, and it wasn't creating these differences. Right now, what I see is the big problem is why are you creating the differences? Maybe it's a sense of impatience. Well, see, okay, so you're talking about why are you highlighting the differences is what you're saying, because I don't think they I don't think anybody would argue these differences are being manufactured. I mean, the media is manufacturing a lot, but I think the people that feel the sentiment would not say it's being created. They, they would maybe say it's being highlighted right now, but they feel I mean, this is a this is legitimate. I mean, this is something that maybe they've been quiet about it for a long time. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know what? When I get into an elevator, even though I'm a businessman, the women move away from me. And and so is that is that what we're talking about here? I guess I have experienced that. And it's not so. So I, I'm just calling you out on the word created because it makes it sound like it's manufactured in the minds of everybody. No, and it's not. No, and, and you're right. I mean, but you got to look at. OK, and I guess what's the timetable? All right. Because I look at what has happened in trans uh, in the in the last 30 years is remarkable. And then I also look at what has the, what have the blacks done to really address the issue of saying, wait a minute, we're not fearful, we're not different, it's just the skin color, okay? And that's why I think any effort should be, wait a minute, you know what? You guys aren't doing everything you can, all right? Not you wanna celebrate your differences but that doesn't build integration. Yeah, except for I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's oh, tricky, no. though, because I don't, I don't really truly believe equity or equality is what the goal is, even though that's always what's thrown out there. I think it's, it's, it's like it's a, little bit, it's a little bit about revenge. It's a little bit about restitution or reparations. Um, I mean, because if, look, if you, if you went and said, okay, let's, let's just, let's just equal outcome it all the way along the board. And do you think, do you think the NBA would feel good about having half white dudes? No. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's a, I know it's kind of a extreme example and it's designed to be comical, but, but 
it's not really what it's about. There there would be an uproar if we were like, <laughs> okay, let's go out and get some some white guys to place, you know, point guard. It, it, it's equality and equity is an easy term to throw out because it sounds so benign and it sounds so it sounds so uniting, you know, but it's really not about that. It's really not about that. It, it's it's about revenge a little bit. It's about, hey, my ancestors got a bad shake and it's time that there's you paid the piper. Never mind that it's not it's not really us. I mean, we've benefited from the system, but it's not I mean, and that's where I struggle because my my sons, they're so innocent and so loving and so they they just don't feel this. And, and by the way, neither do I, Dad. Like no, my, I, hero, my hero, my fucking heroes were always black. Okay, I didn't even really realize it. They were just my fucking heroes. Whether it was Kirby Puckett, I always liked Eric Davis because his name was Eric. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Randy Moss is my age, and I still feel like a little girl when I see his highlights. Like, you know, so. I, that's what I'm saying is that we. We have this huge sociological problem that nobody can really ascertain what is the size of it, who does it impact. You can always say, Eric, I grew up in Richfield, okay? Right across uh, Pratt's Avenue was Edina. Those were the kids whose fathers were lawyers and doctors. Cake eaters. In our family, in our Richfield, they were electricians, tradesmen. You know, they had nice families. Those are the ones that had the nice cars. We were the ones that had beaters. Did they have privilege? Of course they had privilege compared to us. Were but you felt, but here's the thing, you felt connected to the system, Dad. You felt like, because you did it. And so, and, and, and this is where they would argue that by virtue of their skin color, they've, the obstacles are so plentiful and so high that it's drudgery. You taught me about drudgery when I was a kid. If 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 you, everything you do feels for naught or it's not enjoyable or it doesn't feel like it's bearing fruit, you get into a psychological state that is 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 beyond depression. It's it's overwhelming. And if that's if that's the case, then how do we connect? And that was my original question: is how do we connect them to the system so they a don't want to burn it down, but b feel like they actually have control over the outcome. And, and to me, without more clarity and definition, it's impossible because anybody that didn't win can give you a reason why they lost. All right. Is it a valid truth? I feel this way. We're now giving them all kinds of social approval to say it's OK to feel that way. I'm not. Am I 100 percent convinced because I've seen a lot of successful black people a lot of people that over the, I mean, have, are doing quite well. Most of those that I talk to do would rather not even have this. So there's there a handful because it's a very easy thing to say. Now I'm not saying this is the case, but we don't know. So we're living without full definition of what is the size of the problem, who is it impacting, and why. You're doing the same thing they are by having some sort of generalized, intuitively potential uh, explanation that, by the way, it doesn't pass science. It makes intuitive sense. And could, would it be a nice thing to 
to use. Um, but where do we address the problem? Reparation? I don't know, because that doesn't make any sense. But you still go with families that have, for example, been on welfare. One of the things I heard was, look, you put a father into a household and the race differences go away. All right. Much of the difference in education, how much school they get, how well they do in school is simply can be determined by was there a father present or not. Right. All right. So what good does it reparation do if the element is saying we need some sort of strong father figure? You don't want to know what it seems like to me with with our access to data. I mean, the fact that we've got you know, these, these corporations that can predict our behavior based on what they know we already do on the internet and, 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 and how, how specific everything is, I feel like we could get to the bottom of how to fix this. But the people with that kind of, you know, with the finances, with the brain power, they don't really, I, don't, I feel like they don't truly have an interest in fixing this. I don't feel like they truly have an interest in, in bridging the gap, right? There's, it's way more beneficial to have this kind of unrest because we live in a clickbait world. We live in an ad revenue world. We live in a world where people who feel hostile towards one another are, you're able to profit off of them. Like, if you know what you're doing, it, anytime in business, the best thing you can do is have a sense of understanding versus the, the unknown. I agree with you 100% if we really took the data, but I can almost guarantee nobody wants to hear what the data has to say. Okay. What's happened is, and maybe you can help me understand this, people today are not, it's almost like they're not designed to, to get beyond the emotional reaction. The emotional reaction is all they have. That's instead right. of, instead of the first reaction like i i actually so 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 i you know we always have an emotional reaction first right always yeah. it's, it's it's like the it's like the color red it's the first thing that hits your eyes okay yeah. emotions the first thing but then if you've lived long enough you've evolved enough you've you're wise enough you're educated enough emotion is just one component Right. Right. It's, it's like it's like it's it's just one ingredient in the in the in the cake you're baking. But it seems like more and more emotional reaction is the whole cake. Emotions are the whole cake, which, by the way, is an, is another thing that children do. It's like they only have an emotional reaction. It, it begins and ends with how they feel about having to go to bed. That's it. Very little perspective on why sleep's important. If you go to bed tomorrow, come sooner. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like just an emotional reaction to bedtime. And so I, I, I look at adults who have just an emotional reaction, which, by the way, I have. I have to that. I have it like to the point of almost feeling like I'm going to throw up. You know, I'm yeah. becoming desensitized now to it because I've seen it a few times. But the first time it was like my body temperature changed. It was like this is fucked. Yeah. But the emotional reaction is is part of it. It's it's one hue in in a in a in a in a whole series of colors. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's why, not- why why are people? And I understand how important emotions are to being human. Like like that's who we are. It separates us, right? Not only our emotions, but our ability to analyze our own emotions separates right. us from a lot of the animals we go see at the zoo. Yeah. Why does it seem like emotions are governing all of this? 
because those are the ones that are endorsed. It's the common language. Wisdom is not the common language. Okay. Rationale is not the common language. Uh, analytical thought is not the common language. Why? Emotion, because they're fast, expedient, and present. Okay. And by the way, and then they get approved. Okay. So that's social media. That's what's happened. And that's technology. This is what technology has created. I mean, is it, do we lack the ability to think critically now because we don't even have to know where we're going? We don't have to remember phone numbers. We don't have to pursue knowledge. We can Google it. I mean, is it, have we been rewired? And I'm talking even adults who lived before the internet age. Have we already been rewired? Are we, are we that adept at evolving that we've been rewired now to, to literally not possess the ability to think critically beyond our emotions? Never mind the younger generation, because let's yeah, be honest, they don't even, they can't. And that's part of the reason probably anything that's happened before them, they have no context. They have no ability to contextualize, right? For, so, so, so in a lot of ways, they are, for, forget about them for a second. I mean, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to analyze their ability to think critically because they, they've never, they've never had to. Forget all the technology. They also had parents who swooped in every time they had to have, had to think for themselves. So that's that's something completely different. But what about us who straddle the line be between pre-internet, post-internet? Have we become rewired already so that emotion is is or, or the ability to think critically is is already being phased out? What is rewarded? Okay, that which is rewarded gets repeated. We're going to back to. B.F. Skinner and the Rats, all right? We do not reward critical thought. I posted a critical paper and gave it a thought. I got very few. So we're fucked. We're, well, I mean, it depends on what we want to uh, promote and endorse. I mean, I, I think one of the challenges, I don't know, because I don't look at our leadership as promoting critical thought. I don't look at our media is promoting critical thought. One of the things, just by the way, as a sidebar, when I was doing, you know, I did, drove all this time. And one of the reasons I love Uber driving is because you get a sense of the world. The one unanimous thought that came out of almost everybody, all right, and this was a couple hundred rides. I don't trust the government and I don't trust the media. So right now, people. Which would be fine I, if they didn't have such a huge influence. Oh, right. So right now, people have no source of information and when you're an adult you don't have your parents you don't have your teachers you don't which i'm not sure they're any good anyhow but you don't have any source so you're just blasted by the social media and you, also dad and also no ability to think critically so you're dependent on those two sources exactly exactly because i mean how many people I mean, think about it. I think about going back to the time when you're in college and you're writing a report. Right now, I thought about this. What a teacher would give an A because your friends, you didn't, you didn't come up with a good thesis. You didn't support. There wasn't logic. There wasn't fact. By the way, all your friends endorsed it as a good paper. Is that <laughs> an A? No, that's what would be an A paper. In, in our world today, it doesn't Silly. have to have a strong thesis. It doesn't have to have fact. It doesn't have to have 
reference. It doesn't happen. We don't require that. Yeah, so that's no longer of any value. Those skills are of no value. So to me, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it has to be amazing as somebody who's lived 68 years. Right? Almost 68 and a half pretty quick. Yeah, so 68. Somebody who's lived 68 and a half years, it's got to be amazing to see this evolution, this transition. And it's, it's sad because as I get older, well, everything's sad when you're older and it's no longer the same. That's just fact. I mean, I'm just saying like everything you understand and get good at when that goes away, that's sad. Well, one of the things people say, why do you drive? I said, one of the values that I get is the tremendous diversity of thoughts, people that I encounter in situations. And I'm thinking, okay, this we're getting a little bit off subject, but there's a relevance. I look at the average elderly person, and their world becomes increasingly small and habitual. Okay? I see that with elderly people. Um, elderly people don't even guzzle. They don't. I can't even. I don't even see them guzzle their drink. Okay, but that's listen, how methodical and rigid they are. But. But there's a reason. There's, there's a you know psychological reason as to why they do that. But it is extremely uh, poor for your brain. It's one of the reasons, you know, how old people get crabby. It's because their level of comfort becomes so narrow that they can't. You know, everybody gets perturbed when you're outside your comfort level. But you get habitual. Your level of comfort gets very very small. One of the values of being out in the world is getting, you know, appreciation of, of differences, uh, the uniqueness, the situations, and try to keep that expanse. What we doing with this reinforcement is actually I'm seeing younger people get more narrow minded earlier. Okay. I see the same thing that mm. you know seeing older people where it's like, wait a minute, you're not they say they love diversity, but not diversity of thought. I mean, it's it's like that's interesting. Reinforced for this position, that's going to be reinforced. That's going to be fundamental. I'm no longer open to various thinkings or projections or viewpoints because I now have I'm getting crystallized in my intellectual habits at an earlier age. Does that wow. make sense? Wow, yeah, that makes it, that's actually frightening. That's, that's frightening very, for the future. It's very frightening to me because that's the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom is diversity, okay? The more diversity, the more you respect diversity. Variety. In other words, okay, I'm white, you're Indian. I can learn from your culture. I don't have to conquer you, but I respect the diversity. Now, what's there? Look in our political system. It, it used to be the best part of it was, hey, give me your viewpoint. I'll give you my viewpoint. It wasn't who could win. It was like we ought to create something through our diversity that's bigger. It goes back to that interdependence that I talked about. That's what the goal of maturity is, should be the goal of society. That's being crushed. That's what worries me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it makes me, I mean, it's hard to imagine a society of, of people who are young now aging 
but not evolving and not getting and, and not getting outside that that rut of, of the way they see the world. I mean, how does that you know, maybe we're just doomed as a as a as a culture to sort of go down this really self-destructive path and then breed a generation of people that are determined to fight to get back some of these freedoms we had. I mean, maybe that's just the cycle. I mean, that's another one of those 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 earthly truths, right? It's like everything cycles. The everything empire died. Yeah. Everything everything cycles. It all cycles. It's a, it's a pillar. It's one of those truth pillars that exist and it's like maybe that's what we're looking at. We 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 have to cycle through this whatever this that's, is. That's a pessimistic viewpoint, but I remember hearing in school that at 200 years, we were one of the longest lasting, you know, civilizations. Because at that time, I mean, usually somebody came in and conquered and something else happened. But see, the thing is, that's one of the things I've noticed, too, is that technology has sped up just about everything, the cycle of everything. And I wonder if, if technology will speed the cycle of this turnover up. You know, what used to take decades to overthrow and rebuild could literally be months or, or just a couple of years. Yeah. It, would, it wouldn't surprise me because that's what technically John, it, it's turned everything over faster, literally from the way you cook your food <laughs> to, oh. you know, the transmission of information to everything, everything. But everybody optimistically, and I'm not saying realistically, but optimistically says, wow, could this be a phenomenal uh, support for growing greater information, but it has to overcome those psychological boundaries or barriers that say, I want immediate satisfaction. I want a social approval. I want- you know what I wonder? I almost wonder if we're too, um, if we're too, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When something wasn't digital, what was it? It was when it, when it wasn't digital, there was a word for what it was. I want to say beta, but that's not right. Uh, it's like alphanumeric, but I know I know. No, when it, but when it was like uh, like DOS mode or something, it's almost like we're it's almost like we we can't interface as humans with the with the access to information we have. It's like the access to information is too quick for the way we're designed to interface with it to absorb it, and so it's fucking us up. It's creating this this large emotional. Uh, reaction without the ability to really decipher what it is we're taking in it's almost like we're there's a fucking word the word would help explain this i can't think of it <laughs> but i mean one maybe not, not beta we're just we're too uh analog we're analog that's oh. the word so it's almost like we function in such an analog way relative to the 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 insane speed of the information that we're taking in, but it's, it's creating this, like this, like conflict. And the result is just emotional reactions. It's almost like we've got to find a way to, you know, Elon Musk talks about Neuralink and, 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 and literally embedding a chip that allows us to read minds and, and start to think in a way that's more comparable to a computer in terms of speed like access files, like, you know, if I need to pull up a file on my computer, it, it's done instantaneously and it, and it looks through millions and millions of files like that. Well, we, we as humans, you know, maybe our memories we can do, but even that's very dumpy and slow relative to a computer. I almost wonder if our access to information is, 
is almost too great for our analog capabilities. Well, and what we're dealing with here is is the result. That might be the case. The other is that with the, the tremendous amount of information that takes place, this gets to the age, we, we read headlines, but we don't read the articles. Okay? We're just... But think we, about it. Think about that. If you were interfacing yeah, with this information... Yes. All we get is the headlines. Exactly. And why are we doing that? Because our ability to really ingest all of that would yeah. take up too much time because we're so fucking analog. Right. We move on to the next topic or next, you know, face page. And so whatever. all we have, what we have is just a, we have a, it's just a, a reaction to just a bit of the information, a small bit without context. Yeah. And then we, and then we relay it without context. And so we, we have, there, there's something going on here that's, that's, that's like inorganic. Like yeah. it's not organic and that's, it's not truthful. It's not true to the core, to the fundamentals of truth, to, to the nature of truth. It's like, it's manipulated, but it's too, we want to say the media is doing that, but maybe that's a cop out. Maybe what's really happening is like our ability to engage and, and interact with this information is inorganic and untruthful because we're not capable based on the speed. I mean, and that might be because look at we're, we're forced to deal with issues that, generations ago they never had to worry about that shit they never thought about it i mean you know people look and say oh how could they be so harsh and cruel no they went out to the farm they feel see i would love to see the math equation then they went to bed i mean you know they see a paper once every and think about this you had a, you you were you were you were exposed to the information relative to your speed through the day yeah what i'm saying so like when you got up went out to the farm did your work and encountered whomever you would encounter in the day. It was like, it was like human driven interactions, which meant they were designed at human speed. Technologies created this interaction at computer speed, but we're still having human reactions to it. It's a, there's a disconnect. And, 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 and so what do we have? We have a disconnect in our society. There's, there's something to that. There's something, I'm not smart enough to actually articulate it, but there's something to that. There's something going on. It's a good hypothesis. All right. So listen, we're at two and a half hours here. I would like to, uh, and I've, I've told the other people that I've overtime right now. Yeah. I would like to have you come on and do something as the Uber driver or, or, you know, whatever, if, you know, regularly, I have a bunch of questions that I didn't really get to ask you that I, I, I picture like your grandkids listening to this someday and getting a sense of who you are, which is which is kind of cool. It's a cool side of technology, you know, the idea that that this exists in some form. Um, so I had some questions I wanted to ask you that maybe help them get a sense of of you. Should, should we just maybe I'll just fire through some of these real quickly and then wrap it up. Well, either that or let's spend some. Can we can we come back and do it? Like another hour later on? Yeah, we could. But I want to ask. I'm going to ask you these questions because it's it's appropriate for Father's Day to ask these questions. Oh, and, okay. <clears throat> in one in one or two sentences, how would you describe yourself to your grandkids in the future? As their future, not mine. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're yeah they're listening to this in the future. A couple uh, sentences. Don't go on too long. He was a man that followed a path 
and he knew that he was on a path, but he didn't know where it was going. But he enjoyed the trip. But that was by design. You wanted to not know where you're going. That's the joy you got. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't goal focused as much as enjoying the trip I was on during life. And are you satisfied with that that choice at this point in your life? I think it was the right choice. I'm not sure it's the right choice for everybody, but that's the choice I made. So you don't have regrets in that regard? No. All right. Is being rich or poor better? Because you've been both. Um, when I was rich, money was not important. I never idolized it. I never really thought about it. It gave a level of convenience that I look back now and say, wow, was that easy? On the flip side, I think I've learned lessons uh, since where it said, wow, I had to do that. And that didn't even buy me a pack of cigarettes. Um, so there's a value to both. You got to, uh, if you had to choose one or the other, which one would it be? Rich. It would be. What does getting old feel like? Um, when you get older, your mind is behind your body. Um, it's where you, all of a sudden you realize long afterwards, I'm not going to run the mile at 418. And my son's not going to play professional baseball. <laughs> but your mind is not there. And I think that's actually good. Uh, as you get older, I like to think that you have a greater understanding. But I believe I pursued that as well, that I wanted to learn lessons. I take lessons. Um, and there's a value to that. Uh, one of the things that looms over is that if it were to end tomorrow, would I be comfortable? And the, the answer is no. Mm. There still seems to be things to be done. You're still hungry. I think that means you're still hungry. Yeah, and I'm, I shouldn't procrastinate. I, um, it's not all just going to come. I, you gotta, you got to do things. It, there's a little bit greater sense of urgency knowing that. Not that I... Uh, apprehensive about dying. Um, it's more inevitable. It's hard to explain. We all know that we are, but it's a very realistic. I when you when it's you not know, as abstract. When you know that you live more than half your life, it's it's meaningful. When you know that you live more than three fourths of your life, you know if you when you know you live more than like 70% of your quality life, because I have no desire to be hand-fed and taken, you know, that. Then there's kind of a sense that says, okay, I, I've got to put something on this because you really don't. Do you think about suicide? Do I? No. As you get older? Um, no, I've, I've arranged uh, with one of my children that if I get to be so decapitated that... He's going to bring me in. so Decapitated? Uh, invalid. No, it's so invalid. Uh, he's going to bring incapacitated me. Incapacitated is the word. Uh, yeah, incapacitated. Uh, decapitated might be good. He's going to bring me the last man to happen. So is, there, is depression like a given? Is there association? Is depression associated with getting older? Or is that not? Does it not have to be that way? I'm not. Um, I think it depends on what 
what you expected uh, and what you expect to be coming. I don't have any depression whatsoever. I, uh, I enjoy the state that I'm at. I'd be depressed if something happened to mom. Um, that would depress me. But no, it's it's going to it's going to occur. I, I I always assume that there would be being older, and of course it, things never end up being like you think they are at a certain age. But I always kind of assumed being in your seventies and up would you would have to be comfortable with the relationship you would have with some form of depression. That would just be part of the existence. No, but that's depression means that you you're not accepting of what is or you are accepting and that isn't uh where you want to be i this is it that's uh, i mean it's inspiring to hear that the problem with that i uh i think i'm i kind of some regrets wish that i had kept my body in better shape you know that i could yeah. be farther and faster and is that a is that a piece of it? You know, if you had a piece of advice or two that were like, like really important things you would tell your grandkids, would one of them be to take care of your body and and, and absolutely take care of your body. Uh, recognize that time passes, um, and that it's it's gonna it only looks fast when it's already passed, okay? While you're in it, you think, oh, plenty of time and all this other stuff, but no, I would say definitely pursue your health, pursue your uh, mental health as well. I That's think something that your generation of really wasn't exposed to. I feel like the younger generation, even younger than, than, than my generation, their relationship with health and wellness is completely different than you guys. You guys were sold a bill of goods and commercials regarding tobacco and food and environmental stuff. You, you just, you were full. It's like you guys were too late to live organically on accident, like, like grandma, because you didn't grow up on a farm, but you were too early to understand the downside of eating shit food because they were the commercials made it sound like it was good for you. Like you guys kind of were that armpit generation in terms of, of, of understanding health and wellness. Oh, you're absolutely. I mean, we grew up on McDonald's and processed foods and those were all conveniences. And, and it was, wow, look at the stuff you can get into the supermarket uh, that was not available to our parents. Forgetting the fact that it was filled with nitrates and sodiums and, yeah. All this other stuff that was going to kill you. Uh, everybody drank Coca-Cola without question. You're fortunate that we had those kind of things that you know were available. Even now, I mean, it's just there's still crap and, and preservatives, uh, but they were never an issue, never. But on the other hand, medicine has uh, provided us with you know longevity that our parents did. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you need it. We may not need as much medicine as you. Yeah. yeah. What is your, this is a tough one. What's your biggest disappointment in me? In you? Mm -hmm. You have to answer it. Because you would never, you would never voluntarily say you're disappointed on every, any level. So I figured I would put the screws to you. My biggest disappointment would be you have gifts, okay? And 
I've said this to other people, what I refer to as the soul of an artist, okay, which everybody around you sees colors a little bit more vividly than they would without your presence. My disappointment is that those gifts haven't brought you as much fulfillment as you're entitled to. And I mm. why they haven't or what has prevented them because everybody has benefited from them. And I'll be, you know, we've said this time and time again, but you haven't, you haven't got as much out of your gifts as the world around you has. I, haven't, I don't know how to monetize them. Yeah. And, and I have that, no idea how to monetize them. And, I, and I've been of very little value because I didn't know how to monetize what I did. Yeah. I, that's why I can relate. But it's like I hope those never go away. Um, and I just wish everybody knew. In fact, I mentioned to people when I'm driving, if they have somebody that's an artist, I bring you up and saying that, you know, it's unfortunate he doesn't get the benefit, but what would your world be like? And this might be a songwriter or an artist or a sculpturist or whatever that has that soul that brings in so much greater depth and color to the world. But, you know, you you wish that, you know, you just had the more money. To, to me. Well, you want what you, you can't have. I mean, you know, if I, if I had all the money in the world, I would probably want some more substance. So. Well, exactly. And, and my greatest, what I, I would love to be able to do is say, okay, Eric, um, here's $5 million. Don't worry about the monetizing shit. Go pursue your life in the absence of money. Yeah. You already have it. Right. But that probably wouldn't be enough because <laughs> I just want I just want my kids to go on vacation and travel. I think that's value. I don't really give a fuck about money, if I'm being honest. I mean, I give a fuck about it as much as I need it to exist and make sure my kids aren't worried about it. But I don't really give a fuck. All right, last question. What do you think happens when you die? Okay. Not what you hope. Not what you hope happens. What do you think happens? You see this guy. He goes through your life. And... Okay. I like to believe that there's an energy. Well, what do you think happens? I Not think hope. it doesn't matter if what happens if I die now. The body's going to go but I've got children and I've got grandchildren and I've thrown pebbles in the pond and who knows what shore they went to. That's why it doesn't matter at this point whether I die. You know, it does. It's still like to throw a big fucking rock in the pond, you know, make a big splash. Right. But yeah, I'm going to be dust. Okay. Um, but when I think about eternity, it's through the children. I would hate to die and not have children and grandchildren. That's that's my eternity. Does that make sense? It does, and so it tells me you're at peace with whatever does happen because you've yeah. got. Those things. I mean, I'm no, I'm not expecting to 
grow wings and come down and shake bells at Christmas time on a tree and say, oh, it's a wonderful life. But if you can, you will. Yeah, Brenda saw a cardinal the other day, and it happened to be on the day my, uh, on June 17th, which Ruth's birthday is June 17th, and cardinals suggest people from the past come, so we're pretty convinced that okay. maybe, we may be cardinals at some point in time. Okay, you sound, you're starting to sound like an old person. That's what old people do. They sit around and wonder if they're cardinals, or the people that used to love are cardinals, but that's, yeah. yeah. What that does is bring a uh, a comfort to those that are alive. Right. Yeah. All right. And I think the comfort that you should be feeling is that, yeah, wait a minute. It's I'm here. The grandkids are here. Um, hopefully, there were great 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 grandkids. There will. You'll just be a name on a family tree at some point, Dad. Some abstract name. You know, fortunately, you live in video form, so you'll know they'll know you better than you know your great great grandfather in that yeah. way. But, but at the end of the day, no, it won't be it won't be a tremendous amount of you know understanding. But that's that is reality. It's inevitable. It's inevitable, yeah. And even if you had a statue, it would be taken down at some point anyway. So who fucking cares? <laughs> I always think that's. That's and you go through stages in life, but I mean, how egotistical. That's why, you know, part of it you see tombstones and it's like nice and everything. You drive by and say, "Wow," but eventually, nobody in your family is going to visit it. It's going to be, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Curious, um, but it would be nice to have more documents, uh, more understanding of what life was for great, 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 great grandparents, and maybe these you would, but it, it's if not, it's like, no, this is their eternity. That's the role. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I'm happy Father's Day. I'm appreciative to have you around. I'm appreciative for conversations like this because people may not understand, but this is literally how we talked around the dinner table. You didn't never take me hunting. You never took me snowmobiling. This is this is what you did for me. It's more, much more than hunting. <laughs> No, this is what we did. This is what we did. We talked about this shit. So I'm appreciative to still have you. I mean, to still that's the benefit of you being a young parent is I still get to have you in my 40s to talk about this stuff. And I have friends who don't have their dad anymore. And to have your dad as you get older and you didn't get this either, the, the dynamic of the relationship changes and the value you bring to me changes. Oh, absolutely. Different value to me than you did when I was in my 20s and 30s. So I appreciate it. And I'm glad we were able to do this. I have one great regret, and I, I've told this to a number of people. Um, as, a, as a father, you don't realize that you do have even subtle reinforcement values. Um, you grew up to be a great athlete, which I loved watching. You can't play the violin because they didn't want to listen to it. Yeah, it's true. You should have put a guitar in my hand. It's one of my biggest regrets. That I, <laughs> I'm okay with it, by the way. I at least some sort of interest in it. I, I, I actually appreciate the sincerity. I, I knew you didn't like it and it meant I didn't have to like it. So the sincerity is way more valuable than whatever I could do around the campfire with a banjo or violin or whatever. So I appreciate it. I good. love you. I hope, uh, hope you have a good day tomorrow. I don't know if you get a chance. We're going to be over at Sarah's, but, uh, okay. ours, but 
uh, happy Father's Day to you and congratulations. And I, probably one of the things you should feel best about is I think your role as an extraordinary father. I think uh, I think a lot of people see lessons in that. I mean, it makes me feel like, oh, I guess I could have done that. That's, that's this whole generation, Dad. We're way, it's just the way it is. It's just, we're, we're to, to a fault. It's to a fault. We, we cover them in sunblock and helmets and we, we might manage their emotions. Is, is it better? I don't know. I guess time will tell. So, anyway, I love you. I appreciate it. We'll do this again. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Slab Content Company.